do have some help to do it or yeah yeah i mean the actual execution of it we have we have uh, carpenters doing all of it so mm -hmm. i mean but just doing the planning and the mm -hmm. but this board, is yeah but this is one thing i don't <laughs> understand i have friends who's working like us but mm -hmm. they they insist of them doing the thing at home mm -hmm. and uh, and i can understand that you can even see this therapeutic as like people almost yeah. do it as a, in a meditative state but for me it's just painful i'm not that kind of uh, Yeah. If you have the time, I mean, it's. I quite not, enjoy it, but I would. Do you, you enjoy it? I enjoy like working with my hands as well, but but I'm I, not, I I'm really not skilled enough. It. I mean, I, I would mean, just. I, be I can see some part of it, like you know, putting up a lamp. That's okay, but you know, doing the whole wallpaper or something. Ah, that's too much work for me. Yeah. No, but yeah. I, th this is very. I mean, like two different types of people. That people, I, I can get the example of my father and my. Uh, uncle yeah, at summer, they were always wearing snicker uh, mm. pants the whole summer, right? Mm. And for them, that was, I don't know, my, my dad is a doctor. So for him, he loved it, right? Mm. And for me, I don't, I don't get, and I can understand the satisfaction of accomplishing and, and building, but, yeah. I, but uh, that's not my personality. Mm. My, my wife wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> so when we moved in, I, I did build a, uh, Construct a, the, this plus plus big bookula like you know, oh, from some. Nice. So I spent probably like fifty, eighty hours or something, maybe a hundred. Do you think there is a cor correlation between like software engineers that you know get satisfaction from actually building something and you know getting that working, and actually having you know building things with the hand and getting that? Well, definitely, up? I think in this in this specific case for me, it's always like when I'm kind of most motivated. It's about having this mental image of something that you can. Construct. You construct. have a very clear idea about like this is the end, clear idea of the end result. You're Bob the Builder. And then, if yeah, it's and machine then, learning or no, if exactly. it's... And then like just, <laughs> you just, you just can't think of anything else until you've kind of shown that you could achieve this end goal or it wasn't possible or whatever, but it's, it's a very strong driving force once you made a mental picture of something that you think is achievable and that you would like to verify or see, yeah. then you, I can just, you know, stay, stay in the... And, and I can, until I achieve it, kind of. Be very and close. I can subscribe to that feeling, and I can understand that. You know, I, I wish I felt like that, but I get hung up on all my phobias or whatever you want to call it. Like I don't know how to do this. I, I get so anxious, yeah. and I, I'm a perfectionist, and so I spend you know researching the whole thing for <laughs> two months. You know, pulling your thumb out. You know. So for me, it, it, the whole process just becomes painful yeah. with anxiety. But I, with other people, you just get started, they do it, and very fulfilling, I guess. That, that would be the case for me if I were trying to do the whole kind of refurbishment that we're doing now. I mean, that would just be a mess trying yeah. to... So how do you do the planning? Did you, I mean, I sometimes wish that like, if you go to Ikea's uh, homepage or something, you could have some help in, you know, here is a picture of my apartment. This is how I want to redecorate or you know, plan the rooms and everything. But Have you seen or used anything like that at some point? Yeah, so so I mean, on on kind of the style point of view, you have kind of Pinterest and these things. Just mm -hmm. looking at a lot of getting inspiration from, okay. and that's where my wife is a lot better than me, kind of mm -hmm. just building up these Pinterest boards of inspiration. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to the kind of the actual figuring out what works, I'm I'm an addict to SketchUp. Really? This three oh, three yeah, so course. then you can really wish like in in advance actually do the full. So we oh, have, you did the SketchUp. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had this laser, you know. Uh, distance meter yeah. so that I can, I've, I build a, a clone of the entire flat oh so I can God. try out. And then cool. you can, you can just import most of the IKEA furniture and stuff. You can just import it as a Reddit, that's 3D really rendered. Cool. So okay. Put, so this is next level refurbishment. So, so then you can have a chance to really kind of, that's where I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want to kind of see exactly what it looks okay. like. And that's, so, we did that in, for the last refurbishment as well. And that helped a lot. 
but it's always, I mean, it's extremely time consuming. How, how did you import, you know, IKEA for furniture into SketchUp? Do, do, do you have like a 3D model of those or do yeah, you they have, to? they have a shop like you can, or, or not shop, it's for free. I mean, you can just go in and search keyword search yeah. and then you can just press import on, you know, the kitchen, uh, method, scope or whatever you, I mean, the mo- okay. a lot of stuff is in there oh, really? uh, by, by enthusiasts mainly. And sometimes that, oh, I, that, so I, so that, that official IKEA. Yeah, and then there are official ones as well, uh, oh, a few okay. of them, but for IKEA, I think it's mainly since they're so big across the world and there's okay. definitely someone somewhere that rend- rendered a certain, I mean, but I, I think or, if we summarize this, I think we can drum up interest to do home refurbishment <laughs> for a couple of more people that are a bit more techy than there are into the refurbishment. Yeah, so, yeah. You, so you get the, the app is, is like, like a, Application? What is it? What is it called? Sketch. Ske- SketchUp. I think it was uh, developed by Google. Mm. So it's 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 a free version that they turned into only an available web version, which sucks a bit because it's usually quite slow to work. And literally, you, you can render your three D model of your. It's it's an extremely kind of user friendly way to do three D CAD or like three D. Yeah. yeah. So it's very much like just drag and drop and you have a very, this almost kind of augmented reality feeling that you can just drag in surfaces and, and shape things. So it's very, very much focused on, on enthusiasts rather than professionals. But, and how does it work when you draw up your apartments? Like you go out and you take pictures with your... No, I, no, no I, you have to do it scratch. You build, I mean, it's not one of those that automatically translates images to some 3D image. You, I just walk around with my, but it helps a lot having this laser like precise mm-hmm. meter where you can just so you measure out you have rooms. to measure everything and then you draw out the i mean the oh this we can plan, improve this we can improve evening. you just do a yeah. panoramic oh yeah you, there are those tools as well you could probably but in my case you know you, you just you construct it from scratch and then you start with 2d surfaces and you drag them out into the walls and add the windows and then you just start piece by piece with layers like photoshop style a layer by layer build up a kind of clone of your home. But from an AI point of view, <laughs> you're an AI expert, you know, what are you missing in terms of, you know, I want to you know, have a perfect planning of my apartment. What would you, what are you missing right now? For to, this kind of tooling? Yeah. For, yeah, I think there's probably two. One is the cost to get started. So if you were to have, I mean, there's a lot of good sensors and methods to translate images like if you just walk around your phone exactly. i mean there's already services for that i just don't know one that's well integrated with the kind of sketchup that i'm yes. used that i will actually learn how to use mm-hmm. so that first step of, of you know use there's definitely we've we've already kind of solved most of those problems to kind of turn just walk around for five minutes mm-hmm. and actually that's already something we were looking at a lot in the in the company because i mean we're in the business of of uh, selling and buying homes so like mm-hmm. having this kind of new ways of, of uh, arranging viewings and getting kind of uh, exactly. digital digital clones of your home that's something we're looking into so i think that's first step of just you know not having to do the F the effort to yeah, get to get, you, to get the to get the clone basically then you can start their kind of experimentation AF to get the clone yeah. faster and then the other thing yeah exactly. then the other thing is I think we're also very close to kind of solution is just that they're not broadly kind of adapted yet but I mean the AR augmented reality aspect once you have this rendered in 3D of course you want to step into it right yeah, you want to put exactly. on your yeah, put on your, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. VR, VR glasses yeah. and just walk around and mm-hmm. select Oh, sh- that should this is, are these doors like too big or this, yeah, this sofa would, of is be, going is too, is too narrow here now. And yeah. I mean, that's not far away. That's like, it's just about connecting, a, connecting these pieces yeah. of software kind of. I saw some kind of data set that they try to do like apartment planning and putting out, you know, where should the, the couch be? Where should the, 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 the bed be and everything? And, and they actually use transformers. Apparently ah. the state of the art right now is a transformer based solution where they generate different, you know, plannings for, for the apartment. Uh, maybe I saw some. Something on like that as well, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's and, up the stuff. And and then 
this project. So then you're doing it with the professionals coming in and doing different things. Yeah. And, and then, so that's also where we a bit lucky. I mean, have good, very good connections through my work, yeah, obviously, because yeah, yeah. we, we, we do work with a lot of, um, carpenters or, or contractors to do uh, fixes and light furbishments of the uh, homes that we, that we buy and sell. Uh, so that's also nice to have, I mean, also partly for just, you know, having someone that you trust and someone that you know is not ripping you off in terms yeah, of yeah. Uh, the price. Yeah, a whole, so the we whole have a, we have a, right. a single firm that kind of supposed to take care of the kind of product management oh, and all the sub contractors and stuff. So that feels good, but I think still we expect having to be there almost every other day, you know, just checking things that it progresses as we intend. Right. So and, how, <laughs> and how long have you need, do you need to be out of the house or apartment? I mean, uh, six weeks, but we're counting on, you know, maybe one or two extra, you know, <sighs> we'll see. So uh, roughly six weeks, two, two six, months six, uh, and we're going to move out completely. So we yeah. can, mm. don't have to be in the mess. Yeah. Awesome. Well, best of luck in, in renovating and refurbishing your apartment. I know it's a lot Thanks. of work and uh, yeah. uh, can be a bit frustrating sometimes. It's nice yeah. when it's done. It mm. is very nice when it's done for sure. But welcome here, uh, Anders It's a pleasure to have you here. We've known each other for some time. And Thank uh, you. It's, uh, it's great to, to uh, finally have like, a deep, long format discussion with you, I think. It's exciting. But let's start with, um, you know, about you. Who, who, how would you describe yourself? Who is Anders Who I am? Yeah. I mean, to start on that end, I guess I'm a 35-ish year old male. I live, live in Årsta, south of mm. Stockholm, with my two-year-old daughter and wife. I professionally have kind of a mixed mixed background, uh, maybe not the most most typical kind of coder or person in machine learning. I've done everything from spending, I think, six or seven years in the armed forces, a few of those in the Air Force as a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. And, um, Isn't that every kid's dream to be a helicopter pilot? Uh, not mine. That was more of a random I, <laughs> I, I would say but, uh, jet pilot or helicopter pilot, helicopter was quite high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Yeah. But then I, I, I've always been very interested in kind of the science and engineering topics or areas. And as we discussed Before earlier, we move on, I think so many people are interested in this and, and I am myself and I actually only flew, flown once and never, you know, been the, yeah. the driver, so to speak. <laughs> Do you call it the driver or pilot or pilot? Yeah, I would pilot. Say. Uh, can you just describe you know, how, what is the, the difficulty with being a pilot in a helicopter? What's what's difficult about it? Or yeah. What's, yeah, what's special or difficult, you know, compared to other? So it's very much a operator's role, mm-hmm. and if you want to be kind of a bit negative about it, it's it's much more about not doing something wrong than doing things right. In okay. a sense, I mean, there's there's so many things that could go terribly wrong with mm-hmm. very drastic consequences, mm-hmm. but and it's more about you know planning and training and executing things so that you stay on the right side of the So of the just, just describe all the controls yeah. that you have, you know, very but quickly at least. Actually, in modern helicopters, kind of the uh, the challenge and kind of the motorisk, I mean, kind of the coordination, coordination challenges, challenges are not that big. I mean, you, yeah. I, you, anyone can learn to maneuver a modern helicopter in a couple of hours and kind really? of fly it. Okay. Maybe not, you know, land it too nicely, but, mm-hmm. but it's pretty... I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's definitely <clears throat> a bit more challenging than fixed wings mm. in the sense that it's more kind of a 3D. 3D, right? <laughs> thing so what do. are the controls? The controls, I mean, you have the cyclic stick that essentially uh, adjusts your your pitch and your ro- roll angle, right? So you, so you like push it forward and the helicopter moves forward, also gaining speed and losing height unless you also 
pull in your collective stick, which is kind of the overall thrust. I mean, just the power yeah. that you get out of your rotor. Yeah. So kind of st getting started, you need to move the stick forward. You get more thrust and then you would kind of pitch down, gain speed. But it's, it's, it's a two-hand so two hands, yeah, it's a two hands, and then you have two pedals, which is controlling the. God, I should really know these terms, but <laughs> your. Uh, I mean, your what's the the tilt? The, 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 the I mean, basically, if you want to rotate around the, the y axis, right? Mm -hmm. You just so you have the that's actually adjusting the thrust of your tail rotor, right? All right. So you're just doing this moment, this motion. So is it one, one pedal to go this way and the other? Yeah, way? it's a so, bit like so it's a little bit like yeah, and then once, for example, once you you increase the thrust, right? You have more counter momentum. So then you need to compensate with the pedals to increase the thrust of your tail rotor as well. And so you don't start like getting this. So, so this you're, right, you're really driving it with four, sen you have four sensors yes. that need to work in unison. That's yeah, the coordination. Yeah, part. pretty much, definitely. But then, uh, as I said, in, on modern helicopters, you have all these stabilizing systems and yeah. you even have full 3D autopilots. You can basically you could tell it to like that, that was go from question. this point to this point. So like it can land still. automatically now with the latest ones? Or? Pretty much. I mean, I think in helicopters, it's rare to ever use it or like if, that you would have it to actually land fully. But you definitely use it for standing still if you're in, you know, uh, sea rescue. I mean, you could definitely just ask it to stay exactly on this kind of G mm. uh, GPS coordinate at this height mm. and it will just stay there within, you know, very uh, small margins. But I guess uh, <coughs> it's mainly control theory systems that uh, yeah. are still right and, and little machine learning so far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, pff, yeah. I think it's very much uh, more standard uh, regular. Yeah. And regular what helicopters system. have you been flying the most or what's your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the, our basic training was on, in Germany actually on the EC Eurocopter 135. It's the same one as the police and That's ambulance. the one we all see, right? I will yeah, exactly. I live at, at yeah. Bermdø and, and exactly. they go past. They, they pass, pass us a lot. We have the, the Eurocopter. Exactly. The Söder Sjökhuset on just the other side of the Årstaviken yeah. uh, from us. You see them a lot. But that's where the, you can recognize it from the fenestra and they don't have an exposed tail rotor. It's kind of in the fan. In, in the fan. fan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that one was I flew in the most. You also have the EO-105, which is a very potent helicopter that can... I mean, that's kind of the Red Bull uh, acrobatic flight, right? So you, you use that a lot for training auto rotation, where you basically, you turn off your engine in the middle of there, or you simulate that, you know, you would lose the engine power, and then you can do auto rotation and safely land a helicopter without any thrust. What is auto rotation? That's, that's a very, yeah, it's, it's a specific kind of aerodynamic mode of flight where you utilize your, I mean, you, you, you have, you basically do glider glider flight glider flight with a helicopter. helicopter so you have That's i nuts. mean you don't have you have quite a poor what's it called uh, aero yeah i mean you, you you don't get very far i mean a poor um ratio of how far you get to, i mean you, you're moving towards the surface of the earth pretty fast but you can still do gliding <laughs> you can still maneuver and you can still find a spot to land if you have enough altitude and have and you then, have you land like that or you yes. just try it many no, no many times you practice it so basically uh, landing it when it's almost like spinning like this yeah so you 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 have to just get it in the right uh kind of attitude and then kind of the incoming air from below keeps your rotor spinning so you're doing kind of i mean when you drop one of those nas or from the tree that you, know, mm -hmm. you see yeah, they, yeah. They, they fly very slow so it acts a bit like a parachute because it's propel it kind of get propels itself but it's actually driven by air coming from air. below mm -hmm. So you do kind of this glide flight and you keep, so you basically, you descend if like a thousand feet per minute and you keep 60 knots 
forward speed and you just kind of and then you can have full maneuverability you can steer it around and you, f- yeah. you need to find a good spot and then when you get closer to the ground you you increase your pitch so that you break the speed forward and then you get even more air uh, because you're breaking your speed so that you can you can also gain some um, thrust and you can actually land it completely zero speed forward zero descent and completely without any any kind if of so if you're really good you if can you're do good it, at it and if you have a helicopter that's not kind of overloaded with weight etc it's, it's it's much safer actually than uh, emergency landing an airplane and helicopter with the right conditions you can land and then basically fix it and just fly away again if really? you know, without breaking anything mm. if you do proper but i don't get it <laughs> it's the whole helicopter spinning no 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 you <laughs> keep you keep the rotor if the rotor even, spinning even, by the air even but without you the are, because i was speaking yeah, yeah, no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very <laughs> special maneuver uh, that, that requires quite a bit more kind of coordination and training uh, for sure than just maneuvering it cool yeah yeah it's boy I mean, dream stuff i i, I, I think rarely think about these things but you can probably get me started if you <laughs> ask about <laughs> and how how did you what were you were you going into the normal uh, army or how, how did you end up in the army or and, yeah. and piloting because I, that's always yeah. it's a dream for many but really hard to reach that few that makes it the whole way So it was never a, a kind of clear or at all a kind of dream for me. I think it was kind of accidental, but definitely started with the military service. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had no clue if I actually wanted to try to get to avoid it or do it. But you know, you you do this test, and they tell you, "Oh, you're you're very well suited to do this." And then I, you know, okay, so let's do it. Banons <laughs> called the helicopter pilot. No, no, and then I was <laughs> I was drafted for the amphibious corps, where I drew where I piloted high speed vessels on the water so streets oh. both nitty so that's oh, kind of where it's but i mean there's kind of similar this requirements is two of my biggest <laughs> kind of similar requirements on you know you should have good uh, handling stress and coordinate coordination and stuff so you, you did high speed navigation and i did that for 15 months and then um when you kind of invested you know 20 hours a day into this thing for 15 years or sorry 15 months i felt that it's ah this is actually why not kind of use these skills a bit more so then i was uh, i stayed and towards kind of the next generation of conscripts oh. how to do high speed navigation in the archipelago so i spent two and a half years kind of just in high speed motorboats on in the stockholm archipelago uh, all year round that was a pretty amazing experience a lot of fun so you were an instructor as well yeah then i i stayed and worked as an instructor oh, um, nice. yeah. i don't know how many if you live in the Ar- <coughs> i live in vamde mm-hmm. in swedish archipelago south and if you know how it looks like with the grinnor and you know where where they were sh- shallow And if you ever gone in the Stridsbostnitti, we have uh, the um, Marina Star. Yeah, I took my kids yeah. down there, and they drove the crap out of us. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, they strap us all in, yeah. all, all the and and for some reason, me and my kids were sitting in the front, and then you know they, they do the full break and all yeah. that crash stop. Yeah, crash stop, and then you realize these crazy people do this at pitch dark, yeah. navigating where it's like. You know, five meters here, ten meters there, and how how fast is we're going? Quite, you know, yeah, forty forty knots, knots yeah. in a quite big, heavy w- vessel with jets. It, it's jets, right? Yeah, it's water water, water jet. jets. Yeah, yeah, so it's an amazing uh, vehicle, uh, craft. Yeah. It's an no, amazing that's, craft. That's, that's, that's coolest. That's always going to be a very s- surreal experience. Same when you do n- night vision goggles in helicopters. Yeah. So you've, you, I mean, you yeah. put on this headset and you have this green small just small area where you can see anything and then you go out for two hours navigating maybe landing doing some kind of and get back and when you get back to the room like uh, three hours later you're like was i ever anywhere or was this like a computer game like because it's so <laughs> uh, and that's a bit scary when you think about yeah this like 
20 ton in the air. Like it's, it's so it's the same with navigating in the, in but the nav- street sports. But in, navigating street sports nitty in Swedish archipelago at night, 40 knots with yeah. those margins where you basically, you're, you're, how does it work, right? You're running on a chart. You know exactly the Marines has their f- secret markers so they, they know what, where to turn. Yeah. But for, for, for when you're in a, in a street sports nitty, you pretty much go by, I mean, radar, regular sea charts where you have all the details. And obviously, I mean, if, if you have, you can go by kind of the, uh, lighthouses and stuff yeah. as well in the dark, but typically you go by, by vision and, and radar. Um, so you can, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. But that's tying it back to where we started. I mean, that's also a lot more about kind of definitely it's about like really performing under pressure, but it's also about not making mistakes. Right. Exactly. Mm. It's not about being like overly creative or figuring out completely new solutions to do stuff where no. maybe you would hope discipline what you're doing within kind of machine do- learning or, or develop, like being a developer or, or an entrepreneur. But so that's very different. I mean, there's some similar similarities for sure. Well, stress management, I guess. Is maybe it's, yeah, that would be one of them, but, but there's also very radical differences. And that's kind of what I think I mm. figured out that this is, this is very inspiring for some aspects, but I need to, I was missing the opportunity to, to build stuff, to, to be creative and the creative to, stuff and to act yeah, to create stuff basically. To, and, uh, awesome. Are you still certified to fly helicopters or is <laughs> no, I, I've, I haven't been in one since I, since I left the air force and not really, I mean, it would be a lot easier for me to get the certificates, but that we don't need, uh, uh, it's called like civilian whatever it's called. I mean, you don't need uh, the basic non, training. No, we, we don't need the, We don't need the non, uh, we only have like military certificates yeah. and which makes sense for them because it's not as easy to quit and just fly for private. Right. Uh, so it's different with the fixed wings. They actually need some, uh, regular certificates. I mean, we have a lot of the kind of the complementary certificates that you need, but I couldn't just go, I couldn't just go and rent a helicopter. I would have to go through mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, tests to get a civilian certificate as well. Cool. So yeah, yeah. we could speak about this for a long time. I think you know it's like uh, all the 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 boyhood dreams about uh, doing these kind of things. Uh, It's awesome. But you spent like like seven years or something in the army. So that was two and a half years uh, with over during the military service and then instructing. And then I I, then I left and I moved to England for a year to London. And then I was at I actually kind of started the path where I thought was actually what I was going to do like at KTH, the engineering physics and, and those mm-hmm. things for two years. But then I was kind of tempted back by actually one of my close friends were starting his training as a helicopter pilot in the Air Force. And I also got, you know, letter home saying that you should you should apply because we had being from the combat craft of the Street mm-hmm. Sputnik, you had very similar requirements for 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 doing the, the piloting in the Air Force. So they actually asked you to apply and then you're like, Oh, I can always you can always apply. Mm-hmm. And then you go through this process of test after test after test, like a number of days. And it's worth very flattering once you actually, they said that you're, you're accepted. Because there are many that are trying, not so many accepted. Yeah, sure. And so then, you know, so then we were actually accepted and I had to actually make a decision. And then I felt like, let's give it a chance. And then I was, and then it's the full officer's training. So it's three years of, of mixed of theory and just, you know, actually a bachelor in kind of war science is what you get nowadays. <laughs> and then, uh, a year of that was the basic flight training. And then I stayed only for one year after that actually working. So horrible investment for the taxpayers. <laughs> I'm very sad to say that, but, uh, so they but I had you a lot, but they didn't stay for that. Long no, I didn't stay for that long. But you also took one year in London, you said, and yep. did more or less like a, you know, Tom Cruise cocktail kind of thing. And, uh, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, having been 
What do you mean? He's he's following Tom Cruise, right? It's, it's going to be a Top Gun and yes, Cocktail. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I think after having been two years and a half in an extremely controlled environment where someone basically tells you every hour what, of the day what to do and you practice this very specific thing, I think I just felt that I needed to do something where I basically had no clue what I was going to do. Like just I just basically decided to move to London without any plan. And my idea was to maybe to play music. Uh, and I mean, get a job in a bar and just, you know, party and something completely different mm. for some time. I didn't know how, for how long, but I also had some dreams at that time of, you know, picking up my, my music interest and doing it. So, so yeah. what was your music interest at that time? At that time during high school, I did a lot of, uh, the, like pop and rock, some heavy metal playing in a, in a rock band, playing the electric guitar. Yeah. So basically when you went to London, did you go there as a musician? As an army guy or as a bartender? As I, I had, <laughs> I had maybe a hidden, maybe dream to actually do some, play some music. Yeah. Uh, but, but not, I mean, that was not important. That wasn't the reason I went there. You had fun. I had fun. Yeah. Uh, but then I ended up, uh, working in this bar as I guessed I would kind of, and then there's a chain mm -hmm. of weird events where I ended up kind of running the bar or actually as a, as a manager mm -hmm. after I was then 20 years old and had no experience from that. But it was a very specific, actually, kind of experience realizing that you could do something completely out of your comfort zone, uh, having, having been doing something very different for a long time. And uh, yeah, it was it was a very fun experience and it was a very kind of teaching experience, uh, very different from everything else I'd done after that. But, mm -hmm. but it ended up doing being quite a lot of work, but also a lot of fun. And what were the main experiences to, you know, at quite young age, managing something or, and in this environment and any lessons like life lessons, do you think you got out of that? I think especially the, the kind of people you meet, the, the mix of people that apply mm -hmm. for jobs in the bars in London <laughs> is, is, is a mass. I mean, exactly. of course they have some similarities, mostly, but, but it was everything from, you know, dealing with people that actually turned up drunk or or on drugs at work. Like mm -hmm. how, how do you deal with that from like bar fights to, I mean, to just, you know, also just kind of the organizational, organizational aspects of making sure that the ordering of, of, uh, of new stuff came in when it should and changing it. Like, so I have actually have a certificate and beer and cellar quality to kind of operate, you know, these kegs <laughs> you with all the systems. Uh, yeah, so you I, have your certificates, Eurocopter, Keg for keg ninety liters. <laughs> but if I were to connect it to kind of what I've been doing after that, going into startups and kind of the entrepreneurial yeah. side of things, I think it was a very much like a self-esteem boost, doing something completely different and realized that it was also doable. Like and you can you can deal with new situation and just kind of take it as it comes, wing it a bit, like, and it works, kind of that. And that's an important, mm -hmm. I think, skill in, in well, that's startup. That's the next step, right? You, after the Swedish Air Force and, and, and that work, you moved into a startup, right? Yeah, so I so I spent that year in England, and then I, as I said, moved back to two years of my bachelor's. And then I was drawn back into the Air Force mm -hmm. <laughs> for four years. And during that time, I finished the third year of my kind of on the side. I, I finished some of my studies so that when I quit the Air Force, I could start directly with a master's in machine learning at KTH. Right. So that's when I kind of, and during, during, especially my time at German air base with nothing else to do in the evenings. That's when my interest really started in, that was like 2011, 12, mm -hmm. when deep learning really started taking off. I mean, a lot of the image, 
mm. progress in image recognition analysis. And, and so that's kind of when I realized this was an area at all. Mm. Before that, I, I mean, machine learning and, and deep learning. And I started doing kind of a bit of hacking. I, I learned to program a bit during my two years, first two years. I'm not, I didn't start when I was four or 14, as some <laughs> other, <laughs> I mean, I started when I was 23 mm. years old, like at, at university, that's when I started coding. So then uh, on my spare time, while at this German Air Force, that's when I started coding deep learning, basically. Like but do you, do you, or uh, I think that was like Teano, you know, it was around. This yeah, and, that time, and, yeah. and then I was got more and more interested in that and uh, realized I needed to go into, quit the Air Force and, and go into. But do you remember what uh, woke your interest for deep learning or how, how did you experience that? Because it's not like, uh, like some guys coding since they're five, but this is like, uh, you know, in the middle of, you know, young adult life, yeah. you are recognizing where you had, what happened or what was the pivoting moment where deep learning came on your radar? I think it was gradual. At this stage, I just, you know, knew it was a method and that machine learning was a thing, but I mean, I hadn't, it's hard to even remember kind of now, but, but then it was during my, I mean, that's what got me applying for a master's in machine learning. And then obviously during the studies, I, then you I go deeper and you deeper into the topic, you find a rabbit hole. And then I had a great, uh, kickstart i think of my journey and career by by joining after my first year in the masters i joined Otti, which mm -hmm. was one of the ai startups at the time in, yes. in stockholm and that was the kind of the best uh, i think experience you could have mm -hmm. like really we, i think we did amazing at that, that time amazing exciting things in, in deep mm -hmm. learning like close to research level yeah. and in product, product setting and that's where i learned about i mean at that point i still hadn't at all bought that you know deep learning was the really the big next thing. I was kind of quite skeptical, I think, and yeah, looking at, me, yeah. looking at other, other models. And then, but then we started using a lot of convolutional networks uh, to solve some of the problems we had and got dive deeper into that. And I got really early into sequential model, like recurrent neural networks and attention mechanisms and stuff around 2014 or oh, really? when it was, so. Uh, so that's kind of, that, that's when really I sparked my interest. So did you start as a thesis student at that time? Or yeah, I, I, no? I, no, I started as an intern kind of sort of lush, and who, you yes. know, of course he had, he was leading, heading the machine learning team there. There were only five or six people in total at that time. Mm. And I, we, we were classmates when I started engineering physics. Mm. So I, he said I should join and I did a summer internship that turned into a thesis work mm. and then turned into just uh, full-time employment there. <laughs> and uh, for people that don't know what, what it is and what they do, <laughs> can you just describe briefly what the, uh, the vision is? Yeah, the, so the vision for what it was really to help consumers save electricity at home. So home, our homes is kind of one of the really big sources of energy energy usage. Uh, and through kind of getting better information and understanding of how how you consume electricity. So we that boiled down to, I mean, the short version is that boiled down to how can you cheaply tell people and incentivize them to use less energy. And the solution, the approach that we took was through a method called so this this aggregation or essentially is, is source separation. It's called kind of it's the classical the co part, cocktail party problem mm -hmm. where you have a mix of multiple signals, right? So if you measure the total electricity consumption at your fuse box or somewhere in your home, it's a mix of the consumption signals of all your appliances. Uh, so then you want to do the reverse operation of summing these signals and separating them into the individual because we are this is what if you in real time can can display to people now your floor heating is using this amount of energy and you can present this in a nice way you can have even notifications on like if you leave your stove on or whatever that you have like real time 
understanding of it that then it can incentivize people to save energy and save money and save the climate. So you actually did have some hardware that you built, right? That, that was connection. initially we thought we could yeah. avoid that by kind of using, or not avoid it, but but. Um, so this was the data quality. After, after some time we realized that really, initially we didn't intend to do it real time. We had more like aggregate kind of, mm-hmm. disaggregated on kind of a daily level so you can really understand where which are the big consumers, where can I save energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we realized to make this kind of uh, engaging enough and also have a lot of additional kind of value proposition of figuring out that, you know, don't leave your stove on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need, we need to realize within, you know, few minutes or something that it's you left something on or that it's nice. uh, then we had to go into much higher resolution data and we turned suddenly into a hardware company which <laughs> challenges things a lot mm-hmm. but it's in hindsight is amazing kind of what stuff we did both in terms of, i mean the cto at the time ollie he's, he was an amazing skill set of you know we, we built we built our own hardware to collect high resolution Data so and then a lot of so you connected basically to to one point in the apartment, and then from that aggregated signal, you should identify: Did you actually turn on the stove right now, or yep. the washer, or whatever? Yeah. What um, year is this? Uh, so this was 2014, or the company started. God, it's so hard with the 14, 15, I think. Yeah, I know. Uh, wait, 2013. 13, 14, something, you, you lose track. Of I mean, like, uh, it, it's an interesting time. I worked at Vattenfall yeah. from 2012 to, um, yeah, 2018-19. And I have a fairly good insight on the product development of Energy Watch. And, and some oh, of yeah, of course, but you must have been in contact. Yes, you, uh, I, I wasn't guys. close to it, but I mean, I like, the, the guys were doing it were sitting next to me, yeah. sort of thing. So I wasn't working on that those projects, but... Now, the challenge for the big companies, of course, that you need really a hardcore tech competence from the hardware to, you know, so we tr- when you're trying to do that and you don't really have the skill sets, should you even try to do it or should you better partner up with what the earlier yeah, no, for, for Vattenfall as an example? I, I know what I think. Yeah, no, I, say, I for sure know what I think. I think. I think we did a great job building the core technology that would make it possible to achieve the kind of things we achieved uh, or we wanted to achieve. But then I think it was hard to, to find a good fit, like how, how to monetize it, how to, how to really yeah. integrate it in, in so both I, people's it, habits and, and as a make it real working product out of it. So there were all these the actual the business side of things. We, we were both running a track of kind of direct to consumers. So this hardware and, and app, just iPhone app kind of that you could use, but also the idea was definitely to collaborate with everything from, meter, uh, the electricity meter makers to kind of have the technology integrated so you didn't have the upfront cost of doing installation that would already kind of be integrated in every electricity meter out there. And also collaborations with the big, uh, uh, what's it called? The big uh, utilities. utilities, yeah, electricity yeah. companies. Can you go a bit uh, deeper into how the solution works? So given you had this kind of aggregated, potentially high resolution signal uh, about how much electricity you, you are using, mm. how did you actually do the source separation into different devices? There were a lot of different approaches that we tried through those years, but kind of, uh, essence is, I mean, it's a definitely a sequential problem where you have, I mean, there's a very specific domain. There is the signal, mm-hmm. I mean, the electricity consumption signal, but actually you have, it's not tr- truly from one signal because with our hardware, we measure the three phases. So you have a lot of information also in the phase shifts, like the way that right. voltage and, and fast. Yeah, so, so you actually have three 
signals. Three signals of, going to different phases yeah, and inside can, the probe scope. And, and you can <laughs> basically measure both the voltage and the current. So yeah. you sort of have actually six signals. Yeah. They're for the same aggregated signal, but you actually have a little bit higher dimension, uh, kind of. And then we measured at, you know, several, uh, kilohertz. I mean, we could measure even in, in hundreds of kilohertz. Really? Uh, yeah. But, but the signal we operated on were typically in the range of kilohertz because that's when you really start. So before that, Quite self necessary. It seems no, no, it's excessive to me. Yeah, we were initially were operating on basically one hertz data yeah. that we could get out of what we call the blink meter. So already you have this di diode. I mean, maybe you know what in every electricity meter in Sweden you have a small diode. Yeah. Some insane engineering decision that because it should be, shouldn't sort of favor any specific interface like USB or something. You had a, a diode blinking <laughs> at the rate of your consumption. So that's that was this that was the initial. <laughs> so we actually developed our first hardware was a tiny hardware, much simpler one. Was it was kind of a uh, optical reader yeah, of that of diode, diode yeah. and then your resolution is actually proportional to your consumption since you have a fixed blink that oh, that's yeah. proportional. <laughs> so so at high consumption you have high resolution because you have frequent <laughs> the blink <coughs> blinking. But <coughs> sorry, um, <coughs> yeah, sorry. Good. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but then at lower resolution you had you had lower consumption, lower resolution. But then we realized that you know. From that, you can do this kind of weekly, daily breakdown, roughly how much is your stove, how much is yeah. your heating system. And, and that's what a lot of the other players did. They did even energy like, watch. Energy watch. And, and that was what kind of our competitors initially, but we realized to, to make any sort of this product interesting enough for consumers uh, to actually use it. That's the only way to make an impact, to make people care about electricity. We need something much, much better, something that's real time, which wasn't at all in there initially, and something that's very accurate in detecting each single size. Mm -hmm. So then you need to go into much higher resolution data because it's just not possible to do it. I mean, there was, if, if you were going to tell people that now your washing machine is on when it's not every now and then, because there's some similarity, I mean, it's, you lose trust in it immediately. So we had to go this, we took, we chose to go the route of getting much better resolution of data. And then you can really look at, I mean, kind of the response of individual electric, electrical components within your dishwasher. So when, you know, the pump starts, you get all the specific, like there's loads of information. So do you, do you um, can you go a bit more yeah. deeper? Yeah, sure. Annotate stuff? Yeah, yeah. so, so, so the, there's, there's actually not really anything, any secret about this at all. So we, we invested heavily. That's also one of the important learnings for me. I think we invested very heavily in data collection, very mm -hmm. early on. Also a great decision from our CTO at the time that we invested in hardware to basically put out smart meters we, we had this Watty homes, Watty families that were our data collection families. And we had a data collection officer with a data collection team that just, just went out to homes mm. and installed this uh, host of, of hardware during a number of months where you put ARM hardware that, that kind of mains the, this aggregated signal as the input. And then we also put smart meters on every single appliance in your home. Oh, okay. So we collected ground truth data. So then you didn't have the aggregate, you actually had a separate meter had, for every Yeah, exactly. Device. We had the aggregate, obviously, because that's where our expected input signal, but then and we then also we, measured ground truth yeah. Uh, yeah. So from these homes. To prove the so this train. is a ridiculously, it's a huge, and I think quite valuable data set that we created. Uh, so we did this over a number of years from hundreds of homes for months oh, really? where we have, so this, I mean, this also, at, at, you know, I think we collected that initially at two kilohertz, but then later at even hundreds of kilohertz. So there's also actually quite a huge data set <laughs> that we collected. So, so it was very much set up for supervised learning. So you had this months of data from home where you have this 
in expected input three phase voltage and current signal and actual and then actual consumption for all the appliances as a target so it was set up for supervised supervised it's similar to like audio you mentioned you know source separation you know which normally in audio mm. is like trying to identify the voice or the drums or the yeah, yeah. guitar or whatnot did you do the whole spectrogram kind of yeah we did try to we, we worked on everything from just applying quite successfully applying convolutional networks directly to these signals when yeah. you were in the range of of like hertz and up. So like if you're looking at half an hour or even actually much lower signal, much higher resolution, then, you know, just, just applying convolutional networks is actually what we ended up doing a lot mm. rather than, but we also tried. Uh, on the raw time series data or yeah, actually on the raw, on the- No, on the raw time series data. That was actually oh, okay. the, what we had in mostly in production, a lot uh-huh. of convolution, but that's combined with recurrent networks. Mm-hmm. I could talk ages about that, but, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, uh, interesting Why thing. not uh, like do a, you know, short Fourier transform on that and, so, so, I mean, Fourier transforms, I think, are very efficient on, I mean, I think it was seen this development in speech, right? So for, mm-hmm. for any kind of for music or anything that has these natural notes and frequencies, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense to, to do Fourier transform. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, in our case, I think we just, I mean, we, we tried it a lot, but it just gave better performance. Mm-hmm. So you have very specific shapes. When you start a microwave, you have a very, during half a second, you have a super weirdly shaped all right. Spike. That's yeah, almost the same. You have signatures. Yeah, signatures. And these, I mean, we just figured that that sampling at the start, I think in this case, maybe you had, yeah, so maybe a hundred hertz. So say 200 data points in the time series around half a second window. That's exactly what you need. And you can with you know, 99.9% accuracy or F1 score say that this is a, this is a microwave, microwave starting. Mm-hmm. So that was just from, you know, just trying things out. We turned out that that convolutional networks apply to the raw signal at some resolutions, mm-hmm. at least were a very efficient approach. So the one, one dimensional convolutional layers then? Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, or, I mean, if you were to apply it on, you could, or you could have, I mean, definitely convolutions were done in, in one dimensions, mm-hmm. in one dimension, yeah. but that's the same. And even if you would use a spectrogram, I mean, you would still do the maybe convolution on top of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. It, it depends. But, but, um, but then you had the challenge of uh, this, you had this very local, but, but rare information, right? You start mm-hmm. your microwave, but then you also want to, f- that's a very specific signature at the time of start. But then you want to figure out during the range of minutes or for a washing machine in range of hours when it stops again. Mm. So you need to go everything from like kilohertz of resolution, very, very local signatures to hours or days mm. of resolution. So how do you kind of optimize this end to end? Because we wanted to continuously show you your washing machine is on or not. And now it's stopped. Now it started. Right. So it's a huge range of kind of scales where you want to have efficiency. So what we ended up doing, and this was one of my kind of really kind of pet project, the things that I was really, really interested in that at the time we, we developed at the time, I wasn't aware of kind of similar things, but we developed what I call, I think, a synchronous, a synchronous, uh, synchronous, uh, time series, uh, recurrent neural networks. So you had essentially, you had a mix of regular signals, a mix of signals that are sampled at a certain frequency. So you get, let's say a window of window of a minute of data that you get in like a rolling window every, let's say every half minute. Mm. So that's like a regular time series that you can expect. And that's, that's processed through a convolutional network. Mm. That's some rep, some, some embedding, some representation. And then on top of that, you have a data dependent, uh, Signals, so they are actually triggered on some heuristic. So when there is a big enough jump, right? If there is a big step change in the energy, then you sample like uh, two two k hertz resolution 
for okay. half a second around that. So you have some rules that depend that trigger so at so some so point. So there was that's what I mean. Like it's it's a uh, so you don't there's no fixed resolution fixed uh, f- frequency of the incoming data. So you have these streams, and then you might have a few of those rules. So you have and different pre-processing layers or different pre-processing. So what actually gets into your then recurrent neural network is embeddings that are from different domains. I mean, one is, you know, on one hertz data, mm-hmm. one is on three phase, uh, one kilohertz data, but very, very short windows. So you have this mix of signals that you just merge in, syn- in chronological order and you make sure that they they map the data into the same space. So the same, just yeah. 526 uh, flows, right? And then you feed that into a recurrent neural network. So our whole solution was pretty much end-to-end a recurrent neural network because we operated, we had one hertz, or sorry, one- With convolutions though. With convolutions as kind of processing the input. Yes. But then the output of the convolutions were fed into recurrent neural network. But it was trained end-to-end, including- It was trained end-to-end. Yes. So, so this was, and it was really, I mean, it was uh, very successfully so, because then you were in real time so, so when you put on your microwave, you could, you would, within one or two seconds, it mm-hmm. would show up. Your microwave is on in your mobile phone. And then it went through our, through our networks. Th- I mean, th- through the, through the uh, 3G at first and then through, through our, our, our pipeline of, of services and through the actual convolution network and, and the RNN and then pushed back uh, as a web, as a subscription. Um, I mean, pushed back to your to your phone within two or three seconds. Mm-hmm. So it was really real time, uh, and I was like seeing this in in. in oh, nice. I think as an engineering effort, it was an, a really fun and amazing product. But then on the kind of product side and the commercial side, we kind of failed to really make it so hard to get fly. monetization, <laughs> right? I mean, like this is a core topic in itself to go into monetization topic. But here you have a, as a as a problem you have solved and ma- made it working as a real time you know, AI system, quite cool. It was amazing. But quite then of course amazing. we should also say that, you know, but of course it wasn't perfect. I mean, it was amazing to that, that it did work and it worked in many cases, but then of course there were all these outliers where that we still had to solve at the time. I mean, it would still say for, for 5% of the home, sometimes you would say your, your washing machine is on when, you know, it's something completely different. So it's, it was never, I mean, it, but, but I think we were very well set up to continue by data collection to optimize it. And we also had this crowdsourcing idea that, you could walk around, since it was real time, you could start an appliance and it would start, oh, something, you recognize a signal and then you could label it. So this was my uh, coffee machine. Yeah. So that was also a way to, to um, crowdsource the labeling. Yeah. Uh, and now we just started that at the time. So I think we could definitely have achieved. But if I compare it with Energy Watch, really much simpler where you basically, you need to label it yourself at home. Yeah. So no I think really, it was based on... Not really yeah. AI at all. In my well, I, I don't know exactly what methods were used, but under the hood, but... In, in my understanding, not so, I mean, like done it, basically you, you need to go out and, and, and label your consumers, turn them on, turn them off and see how it spikes. And then you shows up. So I, I, cool. It works, yeah. but not, not like this. But it was to go back. It was an amazing start kind of, of yeah. having the, the resources and the kind yeah. of team and mentors to, to work with this. It was super, super exciting. Mm. I'm a really innovative startup, I think, at that time, 2014 already. So yeah, that's uh, the point, actually. Yeah. Cool. But then you moved on to another company at some point. Yeah. How did that happen? So I, I think after, um, so I, after a year or two, I took over as heading the machine learning team at, at Botte. And then I, I was kind of, you know, split between, you know, kind of the, I guess, building a company and team versus just doing the really low level kind of research things. Mm. And then I just kind of got this opportunity, got in contact with the founder of, of Sana Labs that I think, you know, of Anders. Yeah. 
and uh, they were extremely early at that stage and were looking for uh, uh, someone to head their technical development basically mm -hmm. they had done some a lot of market research and some some proof of concepts on the tech side but now wanted to start building the product mm -hmm. and i was kind of fascinated by the idea and the ambition that sana labs had and uh, and i despite being kind of very still happy at at uh, the work at, at what i jumped on this opportunity and joined and just describe br briefly <laughs> what's the vision of sana labs so so the vision for sana labs was i mean really to to boost and improve education for everyone uh, through personalization mm. which in turn is kind of achievable through through in a scalable way through machine learning and, and ai i mean it's um, such a we've spoken so much about education you know and how poorly you know educational systems works and how they don't really personalize the education at all in so many ways and i think sana labs is truly one of the more innovative uh, companies that we have not only in sweden but actually in europe i would say in terms of education so well, i think it's a really uh, impressive company the, the hype around sana lab 2021 compared to three or four years ago yeah. i mean like sana lab was not on the radar in that way, I think that it is, I think in the community, Sonalab is clearly on, on the radar of the last couple of years. Maybe they were already then. I'm I think not, you're I'm all, sure. all, always good at creating hype, but yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, there, there is a very real place for this kind of technology and the solutions. But they are, they, they are good at marketing. They are good yeah, at yeah, yeah, storytelling. Think, yeah, good at that. And, and also kind of a bit unusual approach that when I joined, I think it was the fifth, then third on the tech side. So they had already two data scientists at the time. Um, I mean, they had already done like a year and a half or more of kind of just market research, mm. uh, kind of analyzing market, building up the networks. And so I think Joel and Anna at the time that they had just done a lot of work before starting to build a product, mm. which has, you know, its pros and its cons, but it's okay, a bit different than, you know, being very, very deep tech, like what they just start. Or, I mean, nothing is black and white, but, but it's, uh, was a very different approach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think. And you see the pros and cons. I mean, like here we have the tech, tech, tech start that then understands. Okay, how do I fit? Uh, and here we have more thinking about what the market is and market research. So, pros and cons. You see. So, I mean, for me, it was a bit of a clash in the sense mm. that uh, I had always at what I was kind of very slowly growing into the company. I had like spent day and night for years figuring, thinking about this very specific, very well-framed problem where like really it's like a supervised problem. We collect the data we need. You just need to optimize the hell out of the models to really solve this kind of with mm -hmm. machine learning. Where you, when I get to Sana and you know, like there is even kind of trying to frame the pro problem such that it becomes some kind of technical Indeed. problem. <laughs> it's like an it's insane challenge. So, so that was a big kind of uh, difference for me like mm. having used kind of the way that I maybe led the team and set up goals, et cetera. I had been very kind of comfortable in this kind of isolated problem that I felt I, I just knew out and in, right, in my sleep, kind of where I was going to this new, like realizing we have, like, what should we even do? Like, what's, how, where should we even start? So it was very much this early, early stage on, on figuring out the product. And I think I was, we also realized early on that, you know, we're, it's a, there's a very true kind of ambition and uh, regarding really utilizing the latest in, in deep learning and machine learning to to achieve the end goals but at the time it was really about everything else like you know just figuring out how to frame the first pieces of the product uh, to make it integrate like in this it wasn't at the time it wasn't mainly focused on an api for personalization of existing online learning products and then i mean all the challenges were around kind of just how to how to how to 
design this API and how to integrate with customers, explain to them. So, so to kind of the first, we need to just describe a bit more. You know, yeah. What is really the product of Sana Labs? And um, but you started as CTO directly, or did you actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's time. Yeah. But if you were to still, you know, I'm, I'm forcing Henrik sometimes, <laughs> you know, do the elevator pitch or describe, you know, what is the vision, what is the product, and, and try to describe it bit in, as concretely and as briefly as you can. What is the product that Sanala uh, Labs try to build? So I'm not I'm not the right person to do it <laughs> of at this can. stage because it's a long time ago. It's a very different company nowadays and very yeah. different. Okay. But at the time, it was really kind of, um, I mean, AI for education. Uh, education should really kind of be personalized and by doing that so it's not education about ai it was really using ai yes, for to, education yeah, yes. to okay. facilitate and improve the way that we learn yes. and then just extrapolating from that there's an insane amount of value creation like if we can learn faster if we can learn mm -hmm. more efficiently like it just has great impact on a lot of things so our idea was to to build kind of a platform to integrate into existing uh, digital online learning products where you would like would, what like universities or like online um, online courses or what? Yeah, we, at the time we focused on on uh, things that were already were digital and online and established that there were data available. So so essentially it would, the focus was really personalization. Mm -hmm. So by tracking all the interactions of a learner uh, in their interaction with content, like how they what what content they interacted with and how they answered maybe quizzes etc., to build up kind of a representation understanding of this learner. And then build a recommendation engine, essentially. Like that could be integrated in the curriculum or the workflow of this, this digital learning apps. So you could make something more engaging and more, uh, more personalized to that individual. And, and by that, just improve how quickly and how, how quickly you learn, basically. Yeah. Cool. And um, can you just, before we, we spent far too much time, I think, speaking about your background, we should really <laughs> move into um, your current um, work. But... Still, uh, can you just brief very or mention very briefly, at least, you know, what were what was the solution to try to build a recommender system that could basically personalize the education? If you just very briefly speak in general sense about how you accomplish that. So we did within kind of half a year, we did uh, we did build the build the API and integrate with, with real customers, uh, and that was, I mean, a great experience in rather short time seeing it alive with these customers. But I would say in the beginning, it was very much more about finding the right abstractions and interfaces to make it uh, integratable with an existing solution mm -hmm. and very little focus on the actual kind of machine learning op the optimization yes. of the, which makes a lot of sense, right? But, and then- You need to have all the supporting system around yeah, it and infrastructure yeah, around exactly. it before so you it, can- So the actual kind of recommendation and it was quite simple heuristics, right? To, mm -hmm. based on maybe uh, spaced repetition that, you know, there's some quite well-known simple algorithms around how you can recommend uh, content if you want to kind of memorize it and this so this more kind of more skill-based training so maybe not you know very complex abstract topics but rather you know learning uh, vocabulary for language and those kind of more this high frequency of interactions and there is more like maybe memorization or this kind of that was a good place to start for doing data-driven optimization mm -hmm. and personalization so we did that but then i think where the transition now is kind of realizing that this need to be so well integrated with content creation getting all the analytics getting all the data feedback to those that create the content. So, so actually that, as, as I understand, they transitioned into building more of a full platform for both hosting content for actually like a full stack solution for digital learning. Oh. So they because, actually do publish the courses yeah, themselves. Exactly. So it's like an engine, an engine and a platform oh. to, to, uh, rather than, I mean, but now I'm not, as I said, it's been a while since I, yeah. but, but rather than just having the kind of API 
solution. And I think that makes sense. Like there were maybe two big challenges mm. in kind of the integration challenges around the, the API, but rather kind of, it needs to be kind of seamless integration of all the, the analytics, the content creation, uh, and uh, the learner's experience. So I, I think kind of it makes some sense to, uh, to to try out that path rather than just having kind of an API. Mm. One, one, then you have the problem of one API fitting all the services, <laughs> even if you want to really do a personalization. But mm. yeah. I, we should probably take it when we're coming if we look at different topics, but I, you actually, we are stumbling on a very, very important topic when it comes to building data and AI systems and, and looking at this also from sort of the traditional company, Scania, Vattenfall, uh, you know, uh, Arfalaval or whoever. Uh, the situation when you have a very concrete problem and you really, really need know what the data and AI problem is and you now need to figure it out, like the what situation mm. versus where you, th you think you have a pretty good idea, but the actual journey starts in, an, in another end to define the business problem in order to translate it into a data and AI problem. Yeah. So that, that is a quite big thing, right? Where I think a lot of companies stumble when they they try sure. to get started. Uh, they don't even recognize the two different, it's, it's very different approaches, right? Yeah. Here, right? I, I, I think this is hard, right? For a lot of companies to get started with data and AI and even to recognize that, well, sometimes this is quite clear, right? And you can, you need your sensor, you can do it on the lawnmower and you can get mm. that. This is very easily defined problem. Mm. Now we turn it in and here, actually the real problem is to define the business problem in yeah. a way. Absolutely. So that's, I mean, a very different skill set needed yes. and, and combination of skills, I think. So, so in the, the what the case, it was already kind of clear. Yeah, already decided and translated to a pretty pure engineering problem, right? That's solved yeah. with engineering and with the data mm -hmm. and machine learning. Whereas in the later case, there was a lot of steps to figure out how to translate properly the end goal to and the, and the, the, the user problem, problem to translate it properly into an engineering and machine learning problem, right? There yes. was, and there was many, many steps there. And this is a um, huge difference then in the skill sets. Yeah, the the, for sure. Yeah. And the, oh, at the profile, not skill set, yeah, profile of the team. Like this is not a one man show. This is yeah, like for, different. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Different How players. to build up, build up the team, build up the, yeah. I mean, just. But yeah. yeah, but it's a good example when you, when, that you had in your career that yeah. you realized and learned this hard, the hard way, yeah, exactly. the real way. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's uh, for sure. Nice. I mean, yeah. you certainly worked in a, in a set of very interesting companies, uh, more, you know, really high-end AI companies. And, and speaking about that, the, the next step, you know, you moved into another company called Peltorin as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah, to go low-end, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> cool. Can you just um, talk a bit uh, briefly about how that uh, move happened and, and yeah. why you became interested in that? Uh, I mean, let's maybe not get stuck too long on all the details, but, but at the time, so I was at Sana roughly a year, and uh, I had work, been working extremely hard kind of at, at what during those years. And at Sana also with a lot of, I mean, this mix of just raising money, meeting, recruiting, and then trying to, mm. to build something where, you know, there was so many strategies, et cetera. So I kind of felt at the time we were expecting our, our uh, daughter is now two years old. And I think at the time it was a mix of things that made, you know, maybe this is not optimal to be in this extremely kind of fast growth, challenging environment while having kids. So that was part of it. But also I think I felt it was maybe a bit too early to go into a CTO role where you're supposed to focus on really the, all, all the challenges. I mean, this kind of really translating the end user problem into all these engineering problems, et cetera. 
And I felt I wanted to spend more time on actually coding. I mean, really learning to code and still having hands on, on, and working with somewhere where, you know, that my specific skills in, in deep learning and machine learning were already applicable to some extent mm-hmm. rather than maybe in two years or three years. Right. So that, yeah, that's, so that was felt that was maybe a bit too early. So I basically just took a, a bit of a timeout and I took a couple of months off, uh, took some courses at KTH that I mm-hmm. felt like it would be a good start to get back on coding, uh, back on coding and, mm-hmm. and that it's some that I didn't, hadn't t- taken. And then we had our, our, uh, our amazing daughter and I had a, a, such a good chance to just, I had, two or three months completely off. Like, I mean, I didn't have a job, so I, I could just, nothing, nothing dragging my interests away from that. So I can really recommend if, you know, if you, if you have the chance having your first child without too many distractions, it's an extreme luxury uh, that I'm extremely grateful, extremely grateful for. So that was a nice kind of four or five months of, of focusing on that. Uh, pretty amazing. And some giving myself some time to hack on some side projects, maybe thinking about starting something of my own, but at the same time, I've been in contact with, uh, mm. with the founders and other people at Patarin for a long time. And the other thing I was kind of missing was, you know, at the time, the biggest company I had been to was Wotti and we were around 30 people mm. when I left for Sana Labs and we were only around eight or people or so at Sana Labs when I, when I left at that time. So I mean, I was maybe going towards a little bit bigger company mm. where there's a bigger mix of skills already and somewhere where there's a lot of, lots of very skilled people. And then I'm Altarion scored very high on that uh, <laughs> on that scale, and I had already pretty good understanding of of the team and the problems you were working on. Uh, so in the end, that turned out to be the next next move to to go to a company where I expected to have to, to really be coding and working on kind of machine learning related problems, but also the the chance to move work on a kind of a bit of a meta problem of of you know having been hands on with working with a very specific problem, solving it with deep learning. Versus at Beltarion, building more general Focus. solution to make it possible for other other people to to right. apply deep learning with with less less skills, I guess. Yeah. So that was also quite interesting because you've had, of course, thought a lot about how you would like. To, I mean, kind of how you would like to improve your tooling and your kind of infrastructure to simplify your work. But then, when you're in the middle of it, you never have time to, to kind of build all these amazing tools that you would like to have, mm-hmm. but now you got a chance to only focus on building a generalized right. platform, generalized tools to do deep learning. So that was kind of a compelling kind of thing to work on for a bit. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And then you um, suddenly had the idea, now it's time to start my own. Thing, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, exactly. That was another had break while I was on parental leave. Uh, and it was just, again, twist of events kind of getting in contact with the, the founders, the founders of Movesta, where I am currently. And I think during my time at Patarian, I realized, I mean, it was a, it's a great experience, amazing place to kind of, uh, I mean, amazing people, a very, very nice and comfortable workplace, uh, interesting problems. But I think I was lacking the kind of this edge of feeling that I was uh, it really, really, really mattered what I did, you know, and really kind of being early, I mean, earlier in a startup, like having, uh, setting the full kind of path, uh, deciding where to go myself, even though I intentionally chose not to do that in Batarian, I was already longing back towards that, but especially it was just it's a drug. It is a little bit, I think. And also, I mean, just getting, hearing about the vision from the other founders at Movesta, I just felt like such an exciting problem to work on. And, uh, have, have the chance to start a journey from, from kind of start uh, with them was just a bit too, 
compelling. So that's when I and what was Movesta? What was the vision and what was Movesta when you joined? And what was the mission that you jumped onto? I think it's it's a uh, it it's it was and is very much the same. So I think, I mean, nowadays it's it's such a painful process to sell and buy your home or sell your home or move move homes. Uh, I mean, now this, on average you spend like it takes a hundred days. A lot of people said it's one of the most stressful experiences they ever have in their life. So so currently, kind of the status quo, it's it's slow, it's stressful and inconvenient to sell your home, and it's uncertain. Um, so we really tried to offer something radically different, uh, experience where it's it, rather it's, it's, you know, fast and uh, predictable and convenient. Um, so really what, what our kind of tagline is, you know, move, moving people's life. And, um, and we do that by, uh, currently what our focus on is, is offering kind of an instant buying service. So when you're, when you're thinking about moving and you want to sell your home, you can go on our website, fill out uh, a form. Um, and within 24 hours, you, and you basically input basic details about your, your home that you're, that you want to sell. And within 24 hours, we get back to you with a, a cash offer essentially. And if you're happy with this, like this is, this is where it feels like a reasonable, uh, uh, price for my, my home. Then you can, if you choose to, you can move out the day after and have the money on your account and you could leave everything behind. We'll take care of all the details. So really we're trying to, you know, take away all the uncertainty all the time consuming efforts away from you and we were handling it for you. So you can, <laughs> you can have peace of mind and know exactly what you get and uh, simplify your whole kind of experience of selling. And, and through this really hope to kind of solve this knot. I mean, now you kind of have to figure out, should I sell first? Should I buy first? If you, I mean, if you sell first, you risk being out of somewhere to live for several months. Uh, if you buy first, you have no idea how much you actually will get for your current home. So you might end up with, buying for more than you actually can afford. So this, we believe, causes a lot of friction right on the market uh, and makes it less liquid, the market less uh, less uh, motion. Um, so we really believe that. And it also looked the same for kind of the past 50, 100 years. I mean, the yeah. biggest thing that yeah, happened is exactly. that they have digital ways of browsing. I mean, you can browse Hamlet and Woolen, you can, you can, but with really in its core, there's nothing has really changed. And the analog process with, is computerized. Yeah, lift and shift, right? Yeah. Lift and shift, or digitalized, not digitized. Okay, this is the trend. <laughs> you know, we, which one is which? When you have an analog process that you computerize, is this digitalization or is it digitization? Which one is it? We argue about that. Uh, isn't it? Yeah. Which one is which? When you really transform your business, is that <laughs> digitalization or is that digitization? If I flip it. Uh, I don't know, but I, the, Do the we argue about that? The laters, I'm, joking. That. I'm not sure. <laughs> the later seems, sounds more right to me. Digitalization, but I don't know. You, you, yeah, it's a joke. I was, I, I was just, <laughs> no, it's just funny because the joke is there's so many words that we're using all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and what we are saying is like in plain words, when you're putting data and AI on top of the analog process, it's not the same to fundamentally redo the core first principles ideas of yeah. how the core business works. And this is what you meant with Hemnet. Yes. Yeah. It is so it's a digitalization with Hemnet and not a digitization. No, no. Okay. That should be, okay. Yeah. That which sense. one, which one is which? This is what I work <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. We're not arguing, but I actually, I'm, I'm actually insecure which one is which. Yeah. In my view, at least digitalization is more lift and shift than okay. digitization. But yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay, so let me see if I understand this correctly. So in, if you go uh, and you want to sell your house and you go to Movesta, and you can uh, basically fill out, fill out a form yeah. and you get an offer in like 24 hours or yes. something. What happens then? What do you do? I mean, you basically <laughs> give them the money, and but you have to do something afterwards, <laughs> Yeah, right? of course. So <laughs> so as, as the customer, you, you get the offer. So typically we have to confirm a few additional questions during the call, but then we have... We give you a kind of a, a or we believe it the best kind of possible market value, which is, this is what your property is worth on the market. So you can predict what the value yeah, will exactly. be. You yeah. don't know because we you don't, don't know, have a buyer yet. No, no, right. yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. We don't have. So we say this is what your what your uh, home is worth on the open market, yeah. and then we of course have to take a discount on that mm-hmm. to cover kind of the fee for the service that we offer. So the mm-hmm. service that we currently offer is really taking away all the time to. Uh, all the inconveniences of finding a broker, negotiating the price with the broker, having open viewings, cleaning your home. I mean, like, and then, then so you can basically leave the home as, yes, yeah. and you will so, fix it. So you can, so basically, so this is what you can get. And then you have typically this is valid for three months. So then you can try to find a new home before you actually decide to go for this, or you can try to sell it on the open market, but you have a, a very, it's kind of safe baseline. This is what you can, we can offer so, you this. And in those three homes, yeah. three months, I mean, yeah. if, if I now go and look for a house, boom, I can get my cash. Yes. You, you can decide you, you, exactly you, when you so want the to the contract is valid for three months. It, it, it offers a little offer. bit. Yeah, exactly. But the offer is valid for a fixed time period. Uh, and then, uh, you, if you decide to go for it, I mean, it's completely up to you. Uh, but then there is no, there's no additional costs and we can take care of everything for you. So if you want to leave, your furniture where they are. I mean, you can just you can just move out and and leave whatever you feel is inconvenient to us, and we'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of the service. But then I guess maybe a bit towards your question. So what do we do then? We we uh, buy the uh, buy the home and house, and then we find new find a new owner for the home. And typically we do if needed. We do like reparations and slight light oh, refurbishment yeah. and improve the home if if needed. And then we take care of the whole selling process. So through our partnerships. So now partners. I understand the vision has always been the same, but then he says, go nuts with AI on this process. Yeah. So I mean, this in is, all corners. Yeah. And so, so now I kind of have this ties to, to the data science part and the machine learning parts. So to, to make this like a very core aspect of this is obviously to give a fair price Prediction. and give yeah. a good, really good. So to give the kind of highest possible offer to the customer so that they're happy about it and want to sell to us whilst, this on the while, right side. while still kind of maintaining the margins that we need to cover our costs mm-hmm. to to take over all the market risk and take over all the all the work with selling a, a house right and then we believe that what we can do is make like all the steps to sell a home we can kind of uh, with the economy of scale make it much more mm-hmm. efficient mm-hmm. and then for example when we do refurbishments we have much better uh, prices negotiated with our contractors, right? And if we need to do that and, and the deals with brokers to actually sell it, et cetera. But this is really just kind of the start, start of the journey. This is where we identify the biggest pain point is today and why like kind of a blocker in the market, like selling your home is in such inconvenient and uncertain process. Mm-hmm. So if we can solve that by a digital, uh, simple solution, I mean, it's a very good starting point. When we reach a bigger scale, obviously we want to, there's a lot of synergy and, you know, if you buy and sell from us at the same time, then there's like not really even a need to maybe, I mean, if you you exchange make, you, you, can, you exchange your home for another Movesta home, right? And and uh, so you can buy from uh, Movesta as well. Yeah, so that's exactly what. So our, I mean, our whole business model is that we then sell the home mm-hmm. uh, to on the on the kind of open market today. We sell it to new a new happy Movesta home owner mm-hmm. where we kind of made sure that everything is secure. You know, it, it should be no risks in your home. It should be environmentally 
uh, viable in terms of renovations and it has this quality stamp from Vesta and we sell the home uh, for a new happy kind of family. That's one so of now, and all of a sudden uh, now you become the matchmaker yeah. and then you can, yeah, you can complete the full cycle exactly. from both ends, buyer and seller. And at this stage, the business model is quite simple, right? We have then, we have a charge fee like that we pay under the market. So we pay a bit under the market price, obviously to cover our costs. And then our business model is that we, we make an upside on the, on the transaction. Yes, uh, but, but you're, you're, you're taking the risk. So you should be paid for it. So yeah, of course. And, uh, so, and then we have, of course, also a lot of costs associated with, with selling it. Uh, I mean, working with brokers and, uh, and, uh, operational costs and kind of this. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, so it's taking away all these, solving it in a more scalable way for the. But in the end, you could be the full service and the brokerage internal. I mean, like if, if you have exactly. the internal, the Movesta internal yeah. matchmaking market, you could keep that whole thing internal, yeah. I guess. And also, I mean, also, I think kind of a lot of people are a bit fed up actually with how yeah. it currently works, how broker, like having to negotiate the price with the broker, knowing if you're ripped off or not, honestly, like, or if, you know. Well, the whole bidding process. The whole yeah, bidding process and, and, and bidding process and how incentives are aligned or not with the broker and the seller yeah. properly, or like, I mean, it's. And the Stockholm bidding process is nothing like this in the world almost. Yeah, and in 10, 20% of the cases, you know, you actually end up, even when there is a, a winning bidder, then on the last day they withdraw, right? Then there's no <laughs> certainty at any point until you have a written contract. And then you really have to find a new home with the right timing, not having to take a big bridge loan or being out of yeah. mm. out of somewhere to live for time. So we're trying to really solve it's this. It's a broken process. Yeah, it it's a broken a bro process. And it's, we believe, very fixable <laughs> with, <laughs> with, this, ah, with, this, with could, this approach. Could, I mean, so, but then the challenges are to make this really scalable because it's quite heavy on operations and, and on capital, mm. et cetera. So we believe that truly kind of making as much as possible digitalized of the, all these steps that you need digitized, to go through. Perhaps? Uh, yeah, uh, sorry. Perhaps yeah. more digitalized, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, bringing, he's, he's on my side. Yeah, I don't know. Bringing, making the process kind of uh, digital. Mm. Let's stay with that. Yes. Um, and you also- use Hemnet, for example, I guess, to sell. The at the moment, yes, we, we put we put out uh, homes on on the regular listing sites, and we yes. sell with with regular authorized brokers that are partner brokers. Yeah. But as you said, I mean, along the road, there's other ways of kind of. I mean, at you the can easily see what this could with the scale. I mean, it's about yeah. scale, right? It's about scale, and also we we want to utilize kind of our data about the market and about sort of process automation to the extent possible to make this really a kind of a scalable solution to reduce our costs as much as possible so that we can give, give as good offers as possible so that in the end there's like a no-brainer like if we when of course now it is i mean you're sacrificing potentially getting a 100k more like if you sell on the open market obviously you can if you're lucky you can get a higher price obviously uh, but selling to us i mean uh, the closer we get to being with offer the proper market price the more obvious it should be like why why go through this painful process <laughs> but this <laughs> now, now I'm, I'm getting curious because i i can i can just imagine s several core ai or recommender type problems optimization mm -hmm. problems along the whole journey yeah so which uh, problems have you been starting with i mean like the prediction was the obvious one right yeah so exactly so, so some of the or rather maybe bigger the technical problems generally one of them are pure like uh sanity things that we need like proper integrations with the application form and just in you know, our crm system and a little bit of internal tooling mm. for uh, operations and for sales and sort of those basic things in place but then what we spent a lot of time i mean probably half of my time is is data collection uh, to really gather 
I mean, this is again, maybe first thing I would think about from my experience from Wattie, like you really need a good data set to be able to develop. Uh, to de- develop data collection yeah, to, to do a good enough to, prediction. To, and this focused on the on the predictions. Yeah, exactly. Or, or the evaluation. Prediction about the price the that you buy it for. The evaluation. Yeah. You can use prediction problems here. Of course. But, yeah, that's but, what I'm seeing. So, so we are talking about the valuation prediction as the number one problem. Very much the, the, at this time, the most central problem is the, what we call like the automatic valuation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, which, valuation model. which is fundamentally a data collection problem and then a valuation yeah so it's it's a problem so it's a mod i mean it's of course most reasonable to solve this with machine learning and ai or yeah. deep learning um and but to do that you need you need i mean it's it's set up it's a super good supervised setting because constantly a lot of homes are coming out on the open market on hamnet on broker sites and then you know a month or two later they are sold So you have and a supervised setup. Yeah, and in Sweden, it's an, it's an amazing starting point for us because All the data compared to a lot of other countries in, in, in the world, I mean, we're extremely open about uh, the selling But prices. Can you actually collect data from mm. Mnet and other places and use that for your own training purposes or... So I think everything that is, I mean, all these kind of ephemeral data that is temporarily up, mm. uh, available on the internet. So we use, I mean, a lot of different data sources, um, but collect whatever is collect, like openly available. Mm. And this is, you know, scraping, is, scraping a lot. And also using, I mean, stuff at Landsmeter yet, like when you, right. for every yes, yes, home, yes. like Villa and Radhus that is sold, you have, yes. you actually by law can have to register the selling price with Landsmeter yet. And it's, it's public data. Yeah. So, so yes, it's, we're very open. And this is, I mean, for a startup in, in this sector, it's amazing to have this. So we have already before I actually joined Movesta, that was kind of when I heard about the problem, I went back home and started to build a scraper. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like we need, we need the best, we need like all data about the open market. So that is very much, and that's time consuming to build solid data collection software. I mean, that's, we spent a lot of time and, um, and, uh, so, so that data collection and then, uh, modeling on top of that. So that's been very much a core problem but but also just collecting and structuring this data has even without the modeling a lot of valuable uh f- a lot of value for us at Movesta because i mean right now uh, it's not a secret that you know it's very much a human in the loop we have yeah. uh, looking manually at each like the scale we're currently operating we have we can spend the time to really look at the specific case and do adjustments to the vo- automatic valuation mm-hmm. with like manual adjustments but then just having accessible all the market data Uh, so we have like internal tools to to find good comparables. I mean, the traditional way of doing a uh, home evaluation is or evaluation is to to select a few comparables, the most similar homes that were recently sold, right? And then maybe do some manual adjustments. Maybe this is this one had the balcony, this one hadn't. Do some weights, and then you kind of average some sort of average compared to some comparables, and that's how we come up with a. But having really really good information about these comparables, so did this home have a balcony or not? Was it on the top floor? Did it have a pool? I mean, like that's very important. Even if you do the manual, kind of the manual actual evaluation, having high quality, easily achievable data is very important. So we have this gradual process where collecting the data, making it available internally uh, to those in the company that actually places the offers, right? So it was the first step, even before at all having an automatic evaluation model. And then the next step is start building the model, iterating on it, and start showing to the to the one actually placing the offer to a customer. This is what the model thinks. Here are some comparables. Then we can have the the person. So you show the comparison compar- comparables as well to to the actual customer. Uh, yeah. So so right now it's pretty much of a manual process, as I said. Okay, but yeah. we, but it's very important for us, I think, to set it in context to explain. I mean, most okay. people. I mean, maybe you go to Boolear somewhere, you get a rough, you can get from mm. several services to get a rough 
valuation. Mm. But that's you know, not with skin in the game. They can say this, this is roughly the value, but what does it really mean? In our case, we're saying, we think your home is valued this and we're prepared to pay you, pay you this amount. So it's mm. quite a different mm. setup, right? For the end customer. And when we, yeah, we do, it's important, I think, to explain why we believe this is the market value. So that's I think you, you brought out so many interesting topics here that I also personally like a lot, which is human in a loop for one, yeah. to actually augment humans with yeah. AI rather. And then secondly, to actually build trust at the customer by using explainable prediction or yeah. model interpretability, exactly. so to speak. But before we go into those, it would, I know it's, you probably have some IP and you can't uh, divulge, you know, all the details, how the model work and how we come up with evaluation. But can you give some rough, uh, description of how the system works to come up with evaluation? What kind of data, what kind of model, or can you share something about that? Yeah. And if you can't share, just say yeah, that. No, That's sure. okay as well. Yeah, no, I can definitely, I mean, it's, I can't go into the exact details of how we do it, obviously, but, but, uh, so we are collecting very detailed information about everything that's sold on the open market. That's really the foundation. That's the data set. Mm. And the nice setting for this is that we constantly get like a new test set. You know, every month there is new things sold. But you get tabular so, data about the type of yeah, the so, apartment. So, I mean, that's, that's an example. I mean, everything you would find on, on Hemnet yeah. or a broker site, like yeah. the basic features, what, what floors, you know, if it's an apartment, what, how large is your, yeah. how large is your plot through your garden? Do you use images what, as well? Or? Uh, we have, we use, we have a lot of image data and, yes. uh, and you have, so all the basic the features that are, I mean, maybe that's as special, specific as I can go, but mm. that, that's, that's openly available while a home yeah. is on sale. Yeah. And then you can augment that with a lot of complementary data sources, right? You can use geodata, you can use demographic data mm. to kind of augment. I mean, this, you think of this feature vector for a certain listing right. or a certain home that's up for sale. And then you can, you know, augment it with what's the distance to the closest school. Or I mean, you can find right. a lot of ways to kind of augment these core features about the home. So you have kind of the structural things or the address, exactly where it's located, uh, what kind of roof is it, like a lot of structure things about the home, and then kind of the uh, the situational things, how close is it to, to the water, to mm. other things, and then maybe appeal things. We actually, so, in Pelthorin, had a project like I this. Know, in, I know, I right? know. And we had this type of data called LOI, or I think it was location of interest or something, in Stanford, yeah. right? Which is what you said, basically, how yeah. close this to a swimming pool or sustainable it's apparently is yeah, important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so or a subway or something like that. <laughs> so, you, so you can turn it into, I mean, and there is a few options. Then you can do the, the regular kind of, the very vanilla kind of, if you, if you transform each home to a feature vector, mm. and then you can apply any of the regular, or uh, regular supervised learning algorithms. Mm. I mean, you, of course, we started out just extract, doing some basic feature engineering, normalizing this data in a reasonable way, and then applying, I mean, uh, gradient boosted trees is something that's typically something that performs quite well from yeah. some scratch, right? Um, and then that works quite okay. If you have good data, you, you get reasonable predictions out of it. But there's a few challenges with that. One is that obviously it's a very shifting. I mean, the, the kind of distribution shifts constantly in this in kind of time series or this flow mm. of new information. So you have a trend. That's so you have trends, a lot of trends, both very local ones, right? This area is up and coming. Mm. There's, there's right now a lot of demand for this specific, and that's, hard to model properly in a way when you have like, you turn it into tabular data problem, right? You need to do very frequent retraining of the model and you basically need to somehow make sure that model emphasizes recent samples more than previous ones. But if, if you're training on two years of history of data with a regular setup, it will pay equal attention to perform well on kind of the early, the old data and the new data. So, so it's quite challenging to, I mean, this, I would say, I guess, parametric model or non-instance based model, mm. like this tabular kind of feed forward or, I mean, supervised setup. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the very kind of instant based 
model, like mm-hmm. the nearest neighbors algorithm, where it's essentially the traditional way where you kind of, you just take you, the, the most simplest possible solution is you take some distance met- measure where you, uh, I mean, you, you use the square meters, the, the mm-hmm. lat- longitude and latitude and, and a few other features, and then you find the nearest neighbors. So which are the top five or 10 mm-hmm. items that are similar to this one that were sold recently? And then you take the average of that mm-hmm. as the price. I mean, that's the very so so. K, and that's K, also like explainably uh, nice. It's, it's very nice for explainability, like interpretability, and it kind of automatically handles the shifts, the constant shifts in right. trends in the data. Because what you only thing you need to do is maintain a database of everything that's sold, right? So when there's a new property, you collect the nearest neighbors. Mm-hmm. That's of course the the time ago they were sold is one of the more important. Features to what do about the neighbor. seasonality, you know, before the, after yeah. the summer and yeah. stuff like that. Is that something you? It's an interesting. Uh, so, so there, so there are a lot of trends. So definitely for us, I mean, any aspect of forecasting is always there because when mm. we evaluate it, there will be some time until we sell it, right? Mm. So it's not only about guessing about what the price is right now. It's some to some extent kind of forecasting. Is there a risk that there is, is very volatile that kind of the trends right. in this area are not that we need to weigh in kind of the offer that we make to, to cover the kind of the market risk that we take. But in our case, it's much less so than for other. I mean, if you're, if you're buying a home to invest in it, mm. to own it over for several years or something, then you're very interested in kind of the long-term development. Mm. In our case, it's really core in our business model that we own it as short time as possible. Right. I mean, it, partly because of, uh, I mean, we want to provide, uh, I mean, uh, liquidity to the market and sold these knots that I mentioned. So we have no intention in like owning homes and speculating in their value. So, so we really just wanted to find a new ho- new owner as soon as possible. And also kind of in our, for our unit economics, it's really important that, I mean, we, we lock up a lot of capital mm-hmm. while we own the home. So the, the more, the quicker we can turn around the same capital, the shorter we own the home, the better for the unit economics mm-hmm. uh, of each, each transaction that we make. So, so for that reason, kind of the forecasting aspect is not something that we've, focus so much on it's definitely there and it can can be i mean i'll get to that by kind of the right model setup you can kind of automatically model some of these trends aspects as well mm-hmm. so so getting back to your questions on how we do it i mean i mentioned earlier in the, in the initial discussion that we made a bit of a, a push uh kind of we had tried the, these kind of separate approaches and kind of maybe combine them a little bit towards more of an end-to-end approach where you really combine the benefits of the instant-based learning, kind of the nearest right. nearest neighbors approach combined with the really the power of supervised learning, like, like uh, I mean, using deep learning uh, with a supervised setup where you can really tune. And then you want to kind of tune this end-to-end mm-hmm. ultimately. And people may not be familiar with the term instance-based learning, but can, can you perhaps compare or describe that to traditional like parameter model-based yeah. learning? Or? Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm not, I don't know exactly the, the right definition, but I think typically you talk about in traditional statistics about parametric and non-parametric models or learning and, and machine learning. I think the school book example of a uh, instant base or non-parametric model, if mm-hmm. I get it correct, is basically k nearest neighbors. Yeah. So then the kind of why it's non, uh, why it's instant based and non-parametric is that kind of the size of your model growth with your data set. So when you have collect more data, mm-hmm. the, the bigger your data set is, you're just about finding 
other instances, right? That's instance-based. You find other similar, explicitly other samples that are similar. Well, support vectors, like support vector machines. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly, that's true. Yeah, it's also, and when kind of the size of the model grows with the more data you have to, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have the non-instant-based or the fully kind of parametric model, which is, mm. I think, linear regression is maybe the simplest mm. example of that, mm. where you, d you decide that your model is going to be you decide kind of what features you use. You have these 20 numerical features, and it doesn't matter if you have a, a thousand samples or a million samples, your model is going to have the same size, right? It have its 20 weights, it's 20 parameters. So it's a parametric model and it doesn't grow. It doesn't explicitly look at other samples. It learns from the average of all samples kind of what weights to learn. But that's, so that's, these are very different and they, I mean, are often combined in various ways. But, but what we, what we try to do is kind of, uh, so, so if you, if you want to phrase it, I mean, so it's every home is sold in a context, right? Mm. Uh, there is, there is some, and the context is the market, like everything else has been sold in mm. a somewhat reason, like meaningful region. So some, you know, geogra geometric, uh, geographical space and space and time, that's, that's kind of your input. Mm. So how, so can you learn to kind of just, here's your target home. Here's every, here's the whole kind of market, uh, mm. chunk of market that was, that is relevant to predict the price. And then you let the model both figure out which to compare to, like which are the relevant comparison. You let the model learn that rather than fixing a distance metric in, in the right. Kenyan's neighbors, right? You have to decide on your, your space to do the distance metric here. You leave it to the model to figure out which are the kind of comparables that we should use. And maybe it's like a great a scale. Maybe there should be hundreds of them that are used, but only a few of us. Hundred of them tells a lot of the story of kind of the general trends, but maybe four of them are very, very crucial to really so set weighted average in some. So, way. so you try to learn both the end to end, try to learn the distance, how to, how to find comparables and how to weigh them. Mm. How, but you do it rather than kind of taking the explicit steps, you try to do it. Uh, and it's pretty much like a sequential attention problem uh, mm. in that sense. So, you, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of recent progress in NLP and other areas where you can really apply similar. Where, where does the sequence come in here? Is it like so? So when you're looking at what what is this home worth? If you would try to set, put this home in the market today, mm. I mean the sequence is the chronology of things that happens on the market. So the past half year, you have I mean you can put every sale in mm. a sequence, right? Mm. But because you also have the distance of I mean what happens in Gothenburg is maybe not that relevant to Stockholm. So, so sequence is a trend for each area in some way, or trend for each type of apartment, or. What? Yeah, so so you you can I mean you have if you if you transform each home through some feature mm. some feature space I mean yeah. some vector describing that home the basic yeah. all this basic information about this home then if you you can have a set of that right you can have for maybe you do maybe you have some heuristic metric mm. saying like uh, uh, this commune with some reasonable limits on and then you maybe find that the last year there were 160 homes. This is your context, and all of them are represented by one vector. Then you can find find out ways to feed this to the model. So your input is this. I mean, you can you can think of it as a sequence. You can just put them in in chronological order when were they sold, mm -hmm. uh, uh, like some subset of the data, and then kind of your last your last row is kind of this home. What should given whatever happened in this kind of chunk of the market mm -hmm. throughout the last year, mm -hmm. what's the expected outcome for this home if we put it on the market now? Mm -hmm. So so we try to do that, and we, we heavily rely on on uh, kind of recent um, state-of-the-art deep learning for like what? yeah we, we try some different approaches but but i think the the kind of transforming based models are very well suited for specifically doing this like looking at the chunk of information mm. 
it, it's not really constrained by the sequence. I mean, it can, like in a recurrent neural network, whatever is next to each other is very relevant because mm -hmm. that's what's closest in kind of the computational, the information flow in a recurrent network. In an energy network, you can really learn to kind of look at. Uh, so that's, that's a very, very interesting area. Mm -hmm. for us <laughs> and you you said before actually this was before the poll started that you've been basically really driving and a sprint going yeah. really hard a couple of weeks to exactly. work and lift part of the platform on some areas yes yeah, so as i said we we were getting quite, quite reasonable performance out of this more vanilla approaches but i think i i had a vision kind of when i started I think during the first like week or two, when I started thinking about problem early on, I thought like there must be, this is a really exciting modeling problem. Like how do you, how do you frame, set up the problem to learn it with deep learning and to, to perform on the task of uh, uh, evaluating homes, right? It's like when uh, technically I felt it was a really inspiring problem. So already then I think I started building up this kind hypothesis. of hypothesis. Yeah. Hypothesis. Like probably this must be the ultimate way. I mean, I am quite, I have quite strong for good and bad intuition. Like I, I trust my intuition, but sometimes I'm completely wrong. Sometimes you're right. I mean, it's, so I started building up this and it's been, I mentioned it a few times to my co-founders. Like hey, it's, at some point we're going to do this. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Like, amazing. and then started, of course, talking to my technical uh, colleagues in the tech team. And now we should have decided that. So, so if we go back to the parametric or the kind of gradient booster tree approach where you have just this regular tabular data set, to make that perform, you need to do a lot of kind of feature engineering still. Mm -hmm. If you want to uh, uh, encapsulate like, or uh, represent trends, maybe you need to do some rolling windows of trends and augment each vector like to, 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 to help the model to figure out like uh, figure out context about each. Mm -hmm. uh, so we felt that this is not very scalable. Like it's, <laughs> we need to decide kind of what rolling window trends we need to add. And it's, it's not, it's, it's a simple way to get started. And it's simple because then you can just, you know, scikit learn, fit, predict, and it just gives you, and you can do hyperparent search and you get some results. But we realized that we want to get away from as much as possible from the feature engineering and apply deep learning end to end. So I had this idea for a very long time. And then we decided like now, rather than wasting time, if this idea applies, it's probably much more scalable and can have a much more like uh, the, so you the optimal, really it should be able to, in theory, perform much, much better than the other approaches. But, but it's, also, it's also challenging. So there's a lot of engineering challenges in making this model work. So it's, it's a risk. I mean, we might not, we might spend weeks to even be on par with the previous model or we might have bugs. So, I mean, it's more, it's more of a complex engineering problem to some extent. But once it's, it's built, it uh, allows for much simpler iterations and like let, leaving more of the learning to the actual model, which I am very always keen to, to do, like making sure that. So, so let's cut yeah. to the chase. So what the lift is to transformers. So what is the lift that you've been really working on? I would say this to do this common letting end to end learn both to figure out how to uh, giving it, I mean, the, the way I can phrase it, it's basically that giving it a big chunk of data, a rep, some representation of, of the market together with the, the representation of the features for the target or for the target and do it home, in one loop and, and let it kind of figure out by end-to-end -end learning uh how to to do all these steps like to compare and to to wait and and, and um, on its own leave that to the deep learning algorithm deep learning architecture cool. so that we did that but it requires a lot of kind of still a few to uh, always has to achieve that data to achieve the kind of just data structures to feed the model as input and the targets uh, requires quite a bit of massaging of the data. 
uh, which is, 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 I mean, it's quite pretty, it's, it's very clear and doable, but it's just kind of a bit of engineering. So that's what we did. Uh, are you out push. of the cave or are you still in the cave? No, we're out of, we're out of the cave because we, <laughs> I mean, so, so really it's, it's kind of insane, you know, thousands and thousands of lines of hacking for two, three weeks. Three and weeks then, of hacking. Yeah. Or two How many lines of code? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You, I, it's not, it's a poor, it's a poor way of describing how much you, I know, but, but it's it, a lot of code. And then yes, eventually seeing that, you know, it's, it's already without much tuning. It's, it's definitely, Before. definitely better than the previous. Podcast. So you feel, um, we've talked about this when you go in and really now I do a full on sprint, yeah. it can be very satisfying yes. or it could be, oh my God, yeah, it turned out to be satisfying. I hope it then. turned out to be very satisfying because then we can we're in a much better position, more exciting position to continue to improve it. We have now it's actually easier to try out. So intuition was where it should be. Yeah. I think in this case, I, I think so. And I'm very <laughs> happy, but I mean, still you should question, I mean, is there, is there even still completely different yeah, ways yeah. that could even be better? I don't know, but it's, we're very happy and we already uh, put the old version kind of in the trash and, and we have the new one. So this is it a new, running, like yeah, it, like it becomes a new process. I mean, like you have now stringed it together in a different way. You had, yeah. you needed to rethink the process yeah, uh, and recode it. And it's, it's, it's nice that it's kind of already stably better than what we had before without, I mean, there's loads of low hanging fruits still to do that. Like now it's the core of it's, is, is there, but now there's loads of Loads of improvements. And already you, you know, you're on the right path. That's fine. That's a good feeling. We're on a, we're on a good path, at least because it's End performing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. I think you mentioned uh, before on this, um, um, the, uh, to compare perhaps traditional feature engineering work, which you yeah. have to do, of course, a lot to more, I'm not sure what to call it, uh, target or loss or objective engineering in some way. What did you really mean with that? Yeah, I think it's one of my. Shep Hestar, what is it called? <laughs> when pet you, peeves. Pet peeves, yeah. That I think a lot of the, a lot of the recent breakthroughs or like kind of the whole shift from, you know, pre, pre deep learning and into deep learning is, I mean, before deep learning, you, there was a lot of focus on fine or engineering the right feature space so that it becomes kind of linearly separable or you can, I mean, for image, especially for images where, where deep learning first uh, had the first breakthroughs that, you know, finding these really, really weird engineered feature spaces to make something from versus actually just feeding the raw data, right? Mm. And that's extremely powerful and promising. Uh, and for some tasks, it's enough to kind of figure out that you, you have this gradient descent algorithm, this specific architecture, like convolution networks had very nicely uh, inductive biases built in, in the architecture, the way that the invariances that it uh, promotes. And uh, that just with enough big data set turned out to be really kind of enough to, to crack kind of image labeling. Right. Uh, but then for a lot of other tasks, I think, um, th th some, a lot of the progress that we've seen is that, I mean, I guess you can take it down to deep learning is not of course guaranteed to find you like an op optimal uh, minima, right. Or an optimal, uh, solution. It finds some solution that whatever kind of, I mean, I, I think of it as this very noisy environment where you do gradient batch gradient descent mm. and you, in some ex extremely weird parameter space of like a million, million parameter models. And it's, w will it actually convert to something useful? And to, to achieve that, I, I think that rather than kind of do feature engineering, you need to do what I call target engineering. Mm. You need to design a task and an objective a loss function that sort of makes this this weird space where you try to find the minima smooth 
towards what you're trying to achieve. So, mm-hmm. so you know that you can get stuck. I mean, there's nothing that tells you that in theory, a given architecture with a given set of weights could solve a certain problem in theory, but you don't know. I mean, you just have to test and see if with great incentive you can, you can reach a minimum that's satisfying, right? But it, but by, by kind of, I think the shifted, I think that the skills and the kind of, uh, the skill of working deep learning is kind of now understanding, I should give you some examples. This is very yes. abstract, but, but take, for example, I think one of the early, early examples is just, you know, denoising autoencoders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rather than if you just try to classify you, the feed forward network and had an input vector and a target and you had not too much data by just training it to feed forward, like training it, sorry, supervised, you could get X performance. But then you realized if you actually try to make it like, how can we, so, so the idea is really to build this gradual I- internal representations that are very good at generalizing the representation that really sort of models the, the data in a good way. That's what deep learning is really good at when it, when it, when it is working well. So representation then, learning. Representation so. learning, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then if you do the noising autoencoders with, with the same amount of data, you could actually, then you have a much risk, richer task. So the noising autoencoders are basically, I mask a few of these features. I, so in the, in the home, let's say the automatic validation model, mm-hmm. you have a home and you mask out the square meters and the selling price mm-hmm. and the longitude or whatever. And then you ask it to reconstruct it. Mm. So this sort of forces the model to figure out, I mean, there's, there's more things to do to achieve it. If you just give it the tar- selling price, mm. then it's kind of that the, the gradients or the optimization surface that's created from that forces it to some minimum. But by, you, do, by doing the pre-training of a more, more kind of a more rich task, you can achieve better representation and then you fine tune it on your end task and then you achieve much better performance on the same amount of data. Uh, I love this, you know, and I'm sure Jan Kuhn <laughs> would love this as well. You know, this is basically self-supervised. Yeah. Learning, and right? I think that's even better. I mean, now with NLP yeah. doing the self-supervised learning, or, I mean, maybe your end goal is doing the sentiment analysis, mm. this piece of text. Is it, is it, uh, I mean, positive or negative for IMDB reviews mm. or something. If you just train on that, uh, supervised learning task, mm. throw a, a really deep 12 layer BERT architecture on it. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't learn any meaningful representations because it's too poor. I mean, it, it converges to something that is maybe on par and quite close, but, but by doing this self-supervised learning by, in bird case, masking out ra- random words, mm. you're forcing it to really model language, right? As opposed to just some, I mean, this, you first need to understand language to be able to predict sentiment. So that's kind of what you, by this target engineering, loss engineering, task engineering, you, with the same architecture, the same kind of structural inductive biases in your model, mm. but by, by much, by quite different loss function and, and task. And I would you say learn, you learn embeddings. It's uh, like two f- positive side effects, I would say, of that, of that. One is what we say, you basically learn a better representation, yeah. understanding what it means. But secondly, you don't need to have annotated data as no, well to of do course. it. In Texas, right? it's you also by but doing also this in your huge, case, huge amount of data. Is it yeah. also in your case? I mean, if you just mask out um, the size of the, of the apartment, I mean, you don't need to have annotations to, to learn no. to predict that, right? So, so in our case, it's, I mean, you have the same, so we have limited data. I mean, we have, we've, we've collected high quality data for some time. You can have less qualitative data way back in history that you mm-hmm. can access, but it's still like, it's not the infinite amount of data. Mm. It's not where te- NLP like such. No. So, so that's definitely, that's what we're exploring now. Basically, how can you, with this limited amount of data, how can you squeeze out a lot more performance? Mm. And then I really believe in like, in our case, yes, you could, for example, rather than just trying to predict 
selling prices of target homes, mm. try to do the masking approach. Try, uh, I mean, some of these, there's a lot of these First learn to represent the data. Learn to represent the data, data and, it, and, then, so. and then fine tune it towards your end task. But that's a very exciting area uh, where I think- uh, But for someone who doesn't follow the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. I, what, 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 I, what I really hear is that there, we are now in, in our philosophy of how to code and how to think. Uh, we are moving to the next step and okay, we have talked about oh, how good it is with self-supervised learning and we don't need to annotate, but the way you are, you're approaching the target now is that you, you're trying to flip how to think from feature engineering to let's say target engineering. Yeah. So can you explain that in, a, you know, what's the difference in thinking in other words that are even more that you don't need to be a data scientist to understand what, what is the difference in thinking, you know? I think the example, you try to do an example, but it, there is a difference in thinking here, how you approach the problem from feature engineering to target engineering. I get that. Yeah, I think it's just trying to understand it. Better. I see it. I think it is pretty technical effect of, I mean, the fact that deep learning, I mean, now it's still very technical, but I mean, that it comes stems from that deep learning models are very good at, they can operate directly on raw, raw mm. kind of pixel data, raw time series data. Mm. But, but there's not, there's no guarantee that they will, Okay, so maybe I'll put it this way. I think uh, deep learning models are very good at perception. If there is a direct kind of, this is the image, is there a cat in it? Like you just, you need to figure out just kind of the, you need to extract some, and this is like fur, fur pixels. This is kind of the shapes. So it's kind of perception, right? And the same with maybe uh, voice speech recognition. It's, it's kind of a problem of perception. Uh, even mainly main so for images. Whereas if, if you look at like puzzle solving to solve a Rubik's cube, mm -hmm. that's much more, that takes, you know, a lot of sequential steps. It's, it's a puzzle. It's something that, and to achieve that, I mean, deep learning out of the box is not very good at that. But so it's, it's, if there is a, a long complex journey from the input kind of task, if, if I give you some, uh, some representation of a Rubik's cube state, and I ask a deep learning model to spit out the sequence of instructions to solve this Rubik's cube, right? Then it's, I mean, the loss surface is insane. Like there's no way that it can generalize, right? I mean, you can basically generate infinite data for this because it's a, it's a, it's a closed problem. So, if, but I mean, it's so, so then you really need to find a way to guide the learning of the network kind of do the stepwise. I mean, it's very technical, but no, I think it's, that's, that's, um, but let me try to explain what I, what you guys are talking about here, because the way I hear you talking is that we have, we have a history of how we have learned how to code. Right. And then we come into machine learning and, and the, and the sort of evolution of machine learning. And we have all learned and been taught that we have done to do feature engineering. So that is part of what you're trained and what you're educated to do. And then we move into more and more advanced new types of AI, deep learning. And when you are going deeper and deeper and deeper down into how the actual deep learning neural networks works, you realize that, okay, the quality of a deep learning neural network with its attention or its perception actually means that the feature engineering way, which might be relevant for the other type of machine learning problems, or less relevant than actually the target type engineering. You're like, you start, it's like you're getting closer and closer in deeper understanding of a deep learning type mm. coding is all about. So then you start switching your focus that is more 
in sync or in tune or relevant for the deep learning yeah. problem. Is, would that be a, yeah, a yeah. so I, it, it seems to me like as you have these, you guys are quite long way down the deep learning. Uh, you love it. This is rabbit hole. Yeah. This is your rabbit hole, right? And and when you come to a certain level of the of the rabbit hole, it's like okay, your understanding for the deep learning mechanisms means well. You start thinking target engineering. You start thinking not feature engineering anymore. That's what I, that's what I picked up in this conversation. Yeah. Is that I think we can we can split it up in two because I, the, the second point you brought up with more reasoning or the perception versus uh, yeah, more reasoning, as I would yeah. call it, at least type of thinking is, is uh, like puzzle solving, for example, yeah. and Rubik's cube kind of problems. I think it's potentially a bit different topic. You can argue me yeah. on, on, on this if you want to, but if we just try to finish the first point, yeah. which is the target engineering or the, the more self-supervised one, I, I think it's so profound in some way. Yeah, this is it. How, you know, it's not too many, too many people just think, you know, okay, we just want to predict this. But mm. in reality with deep learning, if you compare deep learning to traditional machine learning, traditional machine learning is about just predicting the thing. Whereas deep learning actually also automate the process of representing the data, yeah. going from raw data to some kind of representation and then using that representation to do the end task, the yeah. end prediction that you want to do. But if you skip that part about you know, properly learning the representation, you will not get it working no. that well. And I think that is more or less, if I understand you correctly, yeah, yeah. what you're saying. I right? think the intuition that I, the way I think of it is that, I mean, your loss function is the kind of the feedback you give to the net to the network right mm -hmm. and you by every batch you ask it to spit out something and you tell if, if it was right or wrong and this is a very very weak signal right mm -hmm. if you if i were if i if your task was to kind of i don't know put an olive on the top of the fan here and and you were just trying out things and i was just gonna say is are you like are you right or wrong and I mean, it would, like, so many things for you to try out in this room because you have no idea what I'm, what I'm asking you to do initially. That's how I think of a network, mm. right? But every time you try, you do something. I mean, you spit out something. I tell you like, no, we do a little bit closer to this. But, but I think if you can, if you, I mean, that's a bad example, but, but the way you, if you can, the richer feedback you can put back, the richer feedback you can give the, mm. the encode in the gradients when you train your network. Uh, the, the more likely it is that it kind of finds good representations. Mm. So that's kind of my intuition. Yeah, it's very technical, but that's my intuition. No, but, it, so. but now, yeah. now, now it becomes more and more clear to mm. me what we're talking about. It's simply to recognize the differences in techniques and mm. deep neural networks being its own technique. On a deeper level, you need to understand the problem and work on other topics are becoming more important, right? Yeah. So you, you are paying attention to the early part of, of the representation is super important to yeah. get the performance out of it. So basically you're switching your attention to how you look at the problem because that's what you need to do to get performant deep learning. It's, yeah. it's that simple that just because you've done machine learning, you still need to learn the ins and outs of deep learning to understand where to pay attention. And I think, yeah, and I think it's such a flexible algorithm. So there's a lot of yeah. creative ways to achieve this. I think another good example is some of the, I guess it was open AI, some reinforcement learning algorithms where you're trying to just play Doom or one of these first person shooter. And in the reinforcement learning setting, there's even a bigger like dilution of the feedback because you have to do a whole sequence of actions and you just told them, did you get closer or further away from kind of the end goal? So there's a very weak kind of guiding signal. And you, when you try to do that with deep learning from pixels on the screen, they they figured out that if you also try to predict, I mean, obviously a part of this puzzle 
is figuring out the 3D world, right? Mm. So the end goal is just, did you, did you survive or did you die? Like that's the feedback signal, like one or zero. But to be able to navigate in this maze, you need to first figure out uh, what's even the, I mean, what's, what's even these pixels, what do they even mean? And then they also did this self-supervised. They basically asked the model to predict the next five frames or so, mm. which is completely, it's not at all, the end goal is to it's kind of win. It's off topic. It's off topic. It's like you, it's you're this, trying to- It's off topic, but it makes you more performant. It forces, it forces, and it's the same network taking the actions, navigating in the maze that you previously were just spitting out actions and you told it that you get closer, further away from the goal. But now you force it to predict the next pixels, which is like just an auxiliary kind of extra task. Mm. And that just went from like zero performance to good performance because it just, it's a, it's a you need to understand the world yeah, before you can before you can the neural the network yeah. needs to i mean like the point is the neural network needs to understand the world to perform so it's a different type of engineering and to tie it back to maybe so you need to code how to understand the world now i can now i can be performing yeah. and to tie it back to classical machine learning i think previously of course you tried to impose your understanding of the problem and you would split it up in sub problems but then you would have to first create one program or algorithm that did the mm. first part that tried to kind of that was your 3D engine that tried to predict from some pixels what the map was. And then you had another algorithm taking that as input, trying to navigate it. So you had these old modules like stacked on top of each other. And in the end, maybe you made it kind of work, but then you were kind of had no way of kind of end to end optimize it. So the difference is with, with, with deep learning, you can try to use the same core uh, representation or like the same core algorithm to do all the subtasks. And once you kind of solve them one by one, you can still fine tune it end to end, which allows for much better end results. Yeah. Because you have all these glitches in your, in your engineering. If you step, you solve it step by step, there's going to be this bottlenecks of information that doesn't And, and now, now we had a goosebump yeah. moment, you know, because, <laughs> so that's and the goosebump moment was, this was your re-engineering task that you did with Movesta. Instead of having many steps, yeah, kind of. you basically built the end to end. So now you can work yeah. on the whole thing but so you can't can exactly but you can't just trust it to figure out the journey <laughs> you still have to do this loss engineering and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. guide it along the way yeah. so that the model but, the, but the, in the, the hypothesis what you're trying to do yeah. is this yeah pretty much mm. cool and Very cool. i would like to to move into the other topic you mentioned which was the the puzzle solving kind of problem <laughs> yeah. and and it's much more philosophical i would yeah. say i'm not sure if you can connect that to investa in some way or if you have some use for that there but let me just try to frame the problem a bit and see if you agree with this context or if you actually mean something else but for me what you said at least you know it, it's the perception versus reasoning kind of yeah. dilemma yeah for sure and um you know francois cholet is one of the you know pioneers in deep learning and uh, you know he, he wrote keras and uh, is a philosopher and uh, google engineer and whatnot met him once in san francisco actually. Oh, you did? yeah, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah uh, the google campus oh nice he also spoke recently in some podcast i think a machine learning street talk uh, podcast or something and um he spoke about the the difference between more discrete problems and continuous problems yeah. and the smooth like lost surface you know you spoke about that yeah. as well you know you need to have a target that is kind of a smooth landscape otherwise yeah. it will be hard to at least use gradient descent to to navigate yeah. through that landscape and here i think he gave some examples like uh, deep learning would be horrible in trying to predict the next digit in pi for example, mm. but it would be very easy to write a computer program yeah. that can do exactly. that extremely efficiently. Yeah. But to train a deep learning network to do it, it would be hard. And a waste of resources, <laughs> for sure. sure. A waste of resources, <laughs> yes. for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that as well. Yeah. Yes. 
So then um, I actually do not like that much the way he phrased, you know, discrete problems. I think discrete problems is not a problem. I mean, NLP is discrete in some sense, yeah. so, but I, I, I still see what he means. Some type of problems are, it's hard to define a smooth loss landscape for, if you see what I mean, right? Maybe if you phrase it that there is a very abstract connection between the observation and the actual underlying mechanism that got this. So in the, in the pi case, mm. I mean, there's a very abstract idea what pi as a number means, yeah. but kind of the, the, the sequence of digits has mm. no obvious way of resembling the meaning of kind of pi, right? Mm. So that's, that's why it's kind of very, what the network sees is kind of the observation. Wouldn't it be fun to try so, to train so, a transformer <laughs> to try to predict the next letter or, or digit of pi? Yeah, but there's, there's just one sample of each. I mean, it, yeah. it, of course you can memorize it if you just train it, but there's no, but there's no I don't think it would work. I mean, so let's say this, I don't think you would, I mean, you can learn it to memorize the training data, Yeah, yeah. but, but then predict the next. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, you should never, I mean, I, I wouldn't say for sure, but it seems like completely mm -hmm. crazy to try to do it. And it, uh, unlikely, <laughs> would it generalize for the next digits kind of. But what, so what, what, how does it go back to the puzzle solving? Because I, I mean, the, the puzzle solve is the same thing, I guess, as, as like the, the next uh, type of digits in pi or something. Some yeah. tasks are about, you know, they're easy to define if you use rule-based systems. I mean, yeah. it's kind of easy to, to write them. Um, maybe instead of kind of discrete and continuous, I think, any, any problem, as I phrased it, that requires a number, a sequence of steps. There's an mm. algorithm. You need to understand that you need to do this. But still, reinforcement learning is also a sequence yeah, of yeah. steps and actions. So, For, uh, yeah. yeah, no, but that, that makes it much more challenging. That requires mm. a lot more clever tricks to mm. make deep learning work. Yeah. But you can make it work if you, if you apply the clever tricks along the way, kind of. But I think that's definitely the, the more of a program something is to, to solve something you need to execute a program of several kind of sequence sequence of, of, of computations yeah. then it gets harder and harder to apply vanilla kind of deep learning you have to do a lot of that that's my thinking yeah of it. And, and there are these kind of other kind of type of challenges uh, you know that try to have this kind of marriage between symbolic ai and more uh, machine learning ai yeah and um, also you know it's called type one or type two type of system or thinking fast and slow and all yeah. these kind of books that have been coming out yeah. you know so many so many different terms about this problem i think um what's what's your view on you know let's take a, a more concrete example like driving a car yeah we can think about driving a car could be solved by perception to a large extent yeah a very big part of the problem, I guess. But, yeah. yeah, but at some point, you know, if you have to decide, you know, I'm going to uh, drive over a, a dog or a person or whatever kind of decision you have to make, you have to do some kind of reasoning, yeah. which potentially is hard to do from a perception point of view. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How, what, what do you think, what would be your preferred solution to have <laughs> yeah. a ethically, morally acceptable self-driving car that kills the right Yeah, yeah, the object? ethical aspect is one... I mean, first of all, I mean, just from kind of plain engineering point of view, I think I would still like to be in, in control of my modules here. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I would like to have a lot of checkpoints in this system where I can really assess what's happening to be mm -hmm. able to kind of. So interpretable so, or. Yeah, inter interpret, at least interpretable and maybe even kind of explicitly rule based at some steps, right? So, mm -hmm. so that would just be my, I would guess that you won't, I mean, that is the reason not to have it end to end. For that reason, but then that's a bit contradictory to what I just said. I mean, to really make it work the best way possible, I still believe that kind of an end-to-end -end mm. optimized solution will will 
be more performant. Yeah. So, so that's just one aspect. That just you know maybe too many, too many steps of this program to run a car that mm. I would maybe like to be in control of them initially, and then maybe gradually try to merge them together into more end-to-end uh, thought. Mm. And then yeah, as you really point out in the ethical aspects also. I mean, it's. Um, I think. Uh, there, there's so many other, I mean, it's whether it's kind of end-to-end or not, where, I mean, how, I think you, I think you will be able to explain this part. I mean, kind of what it, you, you must be able to, for kind of legislation makers and mm. for, for the public interest, I think you have to be able to. But do you think rule-based systems is the only way to explain things or do you think explainable deep learning models is yeah, the way no, to go as well? I think, I think there will be increased acceptance. The more, the more, uh, the more applied similar scenarios when you know we apply, I think it's, mm. I think there is, if you, with, with sufficient interpretability, it doesn't have to be rule-based. Mm. If you can just sort of statistically just show that this is the, this is the so learned that's what, way. That's what you do in Movesta, right? I mean, you use uh, these kind of instance-based approaches to to show, or at least explain yeah. by showing examples. Right? Yeah, of course, it's a bit, uh, a bit less on stake in that sense. If it goes wrong, I mean, you you, yeah. you didn't get the market price, but it goes wrong in self-growing cars. But, but, even but, but, but exactly, yeah. it's, I mean, it's you can still say that this is, you can explain the underlying data that was used and mm-hmm. you don't have to explain exactly, well, the algorithm said that this was a comparable and it's, but it's worth 10% more because of exactly these factors. I mean, maybe you couldn't even say it because you don't have that level of, but you can still simulate and say that, you know, this property, yes, you see maybe on Hemnet historical sales that there was one close to you that sold for oh. 200k more, right. and we can explain to you that you that that property had a pool. Oh. I mean that that's valuable because we can we can even try in the model if we would add the pool to your feature vector, yeah. it would show it. I mean, so so you can there's, there's, there's loads of different there's loads of different ways yeah, to good, to make a, interpretability. That's and a good I, way to think yeah. about explainability that you also add things. In to see if, well, yeah. if you have that, then yeah. you would have also got the loan. And if you do the similarly, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a tired example, but this, you know, this, this mom with a baby in a buggy. Mm. So if you can really show the system, like in this case, it would decide to hit this person instead of this person. Mm. But if we simulate and put the baby buggy mm. at this person, it will always choose the other one. So, mm. I mean, it's like, then at least if you can show that that is the behavior with enough kind of statistics yeah. to show that, then maybe it's enough to say that this is the encoded behavior mm. rather than that it's, it was explicitly designed by rule to do that. I mean, then it's kind of, it's an implicit rule. Uh, but so if, I don't know. If I compare to like going to a manual broker and, and go, I want to sell my apartment. And then I ask him, you know, the broker, why do you set this valuation to it? And he says, you know, uh, I think this Arbitrary. is given my experience, experience, mm. you know, I think this. If I, I instead can go to Movesta and say, you know, here are a number of examples, very similar to your apartment. And this is the reason why we think the valuation think should be like this. This is more This is really good. I think mm. good user experience to to have this kind of explainability, right? Yeah, it is. And it, I mean, for us, it's important for things like, when we, since we do some refurbishments, for example, mm. should we install a wine fridge in this home? How much know. does this increase the value? Oh, nice. If we have data on, you know, does, does wine fridge add three times its value or half its value? Is it, mm. is it worth, I mean, that's a silly, but, silly example, but, but like how much you, when it comes to doing improvements, I think you can really utilize interpretability. I see but, the time uh, is flying away. <laughs> but a lot, lot okay. point on this because taking home this home topic of explainability, uh, maybe for, so everybody is, is with us here because I think also now 
there is a big topic on ethical AI and, and explainable AI and, and all the reports coming out of both the EU uh, framework now and DIG and all that. They, they talk about this, the European way is about explainable AI. Yeah. But what people, you know, trustworthy, trust, yeah. trustworthy AI. And yeah. I think the topic is that you can reach, I think this is a very nice example, how you reach trustworthy AI that I trust and that I, I it's, ex, it's explained to me on a human level so I can in a reasoning way, understand why my price is this. That's not the same that you can explain exactly the code, no. right? And I think that's what people go wrong here yeah. when they think, oh, you know, I can't see, you know, exactly how the neural network, what nodes it went through. Mm. It's completely stupid yeah, yeah. because you can work around that problem like Movesta has solved the problem in my opinion. Yeah, I think you can in most, if for example, interested in this, the risk of discrimination yeah. in like the typical case of how you, who you give a mortgage. Yeah. Or something. I mean, I think most cases you can design a query yeah, to test it, yeah. uh, and, and but then the problem is if this is proprietary and who who has the access, who is allowed to, con- to construct this query? If, if you're a bank giving out mortgages, then this is your proprietary technology. So the, the, I think the challenge is not kind of that you're using deep learning. The challenge is how can you expose this for someone external to verify? I think it's more of a kind of. But I think this uh, is sol- this uh, is a solvable problem. It's used that. I mean, even you need to focus the attention of the discussion and the debate on on. Okay, you want what's the real end game? You want explainable, trustworthy for a human in a reasoning point of view. And if we are try, if we are human to human, how would you do it? We yeah. would do it like this. I would show examples like this. Okay, so if we do that, I think this is explainable AI. Yeah, and I think it's much more explainable than human decisions yeah. most of the time. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there's loads of these issues everywhere. I mean, that it's discrimin- discriminative aspect that it doesn't take into account certain mm-hmm. types of population, etc. I mean, there, there are there and for the sure. And should be standing. But now at least that. we can we can prove it because if we have a consistent way of doing it, an algorithm, then you can prove that this bias exists, right? The discrimination exists before when you had random people sitting making decisions. Yes. Then it you would exchange the people, and you would still have the same prejudices and and and, and biases. Mm. But it's much harder to prove. So I'm very much in the camp of, you know, that this will actually be. Yeah, because the yeah, argument I mean, is so screwed, screwed. I mean, like, it's completely crazy how we basically start, you know, like you usually say, uh, you go on a red light and you get a fine because you're driving a Volvo. <laughs> that's that's your favorite uh, expl- explanation of, you know, trying to regulate the AI instead of, uh, instead of the usage or something like yeah. this. And what I'm saying here is like, we are getting into the wrong debate. Of course, we need to have ethical and un- unbiased AI, but, but, and of course we should have higher standards for the AI and for the human people. But, but the underlying problem is so much bigger, you know, yeah, but I think I guess what, what, it, what is the process today? Yeah. And a slightly different aspect of obviously this, the scalability, the fact that the same algorithm or the same company can have such a huge impact makes it more urgent. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's true, where it's kind of, kind of really kind of the ethical aspects and the challenges with the AI divide, et cetera. I think that the fact that essentially just centralization of power, right? Centralization of for, for a specific company or specific product mm-hmm. has such huge impact. That is a, that in itself is ch- causes a lot of, I mean, challenges. Then, you know, all the things with regulation, like how should you regulate who is allowed to say what on Twitter? Or, I mean, all these questions around when an algorithm gets such huge impact on the public debate, et cetera. That raises, compl- I mean, that was, that's rather because of the scalability of the technology than the fact if it's interpretable or not. I mean, that's ethical concerns because a single company's algorithm can have such huge impact 
on kind of yeah but then then the regulation yeah. is more about monopoly and and, and i mean like yeah. it's so ai but it's very tight strictly tight the reason that it's it's kind of ai is kind of the reason that this is possible the yeah but the problem is now with yeah. the re- ea regulation we the, the 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 people who are further away in the ai divide than the the giants will come even further away so yeah. so so we are we, we we want to tackle the problem of scalability but it's hitting the, the the you know what is the scale is that one company has all this power that is the in in one way the 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 problem yeah. in, in, it's something new it's something, it's something slightly new. new not that new maybe but but it's it needs to be dealt with in some way i think yeah. <laughs> but i think you you're miss I, i'm scared that we are not helping us to playing i think the the level playing field is better for inclusion and diversity and 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 solving ai problems than some of the bias problems that we are trying to take away. I, I think we're making some of these problems bigger than they are. Uh, actually, we are creating a bigger problem somewhere else in the AI divide than the bias problem. I mean, like, I don't know how to uh, how to say it, but I'm a little bit like the debate is good. Uh, we need to regulate it, uh, but we sometimes it's like we, we are missing. We, we, we are we are missing. Um, how do you say it? We are missing the big elephant in the room and, and shooting on mosquitoes. I don't know how to phrase it. <laughs> yeah, it also, so I think it's hard to say. Is, what it, is a tricky question, I think. But I, I think it is from a legislation point of view, like extremely tricky. And I'm maybe not enough up to speed with exactly. That. I mean, I I don't really feel that I can comment too much on like if we're on the right track or not. To be honest, but but it's uh, it is challenging. I think it makes sense to invest. In these areas, like invest in, in legislation, invest in in researching ethical AI, etc. I mean, it's it's very yeah, it, it makes good. a lot of it sense. Is, but I, it makes a lot of sense. And I have a hard time saying if we're on the right track or not. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> some I people mean, are. Some people. Just to comment on that, I think you know, some way to summarize what to say is we always have to consider the opportunity cost. Yes, that's what I'm. That's what that's a good way right. of putting it. So if if you don't use AI, what will we lose? Yeah. You know, how many and when, how many more people will be killed in traffic if you don't have self-driving cars that work well? How many people will die in hospital and and die of COVID and whatnot if we no, don't make use of data and AI properly? Yeah. And and I mean, we always have to balance the good with the bad in some way. Mm. I think that's important. I think that's you the know, bottom line. Uh, and, and just to have a final question, perhaps, and, and I'm thinking more of future head of Movesta as well potentially. And actually, I'm getting eager because I. I thinking about selling my apartments as well yeah. and, and thinking about trying it out. But if I were to do that, I, I would like to have answers to two questions. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, one is, I, I imagine that since you are basically becoming expert in buying and selling houses and apartments, you should be able to, uh, for one, you know, buy and sell at a higher price than most, you know, private people, uh, like, you know, normal people like me, I have no experience in doing this. I will probably probably do a lot of errors in in my way of mm-hmm. for one selling yep. or bu- buying stuff. So, in short, you should have the experience of optimizing the price both when it comes to buying and selling. Yep. Have you done any evaluation of that? Could you simply take like here are people that didn't make use of Movesta. Here are people that did. Here is a similar type of flat. Mm-hmm. And when they did not use Movesta, they got this money for it. When they did use it, they got this money and see some kind of percentage uplift or something from f- from that we are the one selling it, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit hard since we, for a large fraction of the homes, we actually do invest quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in in fixing it up, refurbishing yeah. it. 
so that it's it's like ready to move in for the people. And that is always it's hard to compare yeah, because so exactly then, otherwise it's, it's private person that do the yeah. investment, and now you have to do the investment. We have to do investment, and so that's where we can do a lot of up. Uh, I mean, uh, increase our margins because we can optimize that process. Mm -hmm. We have the negotiations with the contractors already in place. We know how to execute this operationally. Yeah. So it's a good way for us, but it's not like, it's not intended to be the core of our business. The core of our business is to unlock this knot of the complexity of buying and selling. So, yeah. so it's not, but, but for, that is one the, the way to add, is add value, to create value. We can do that. And that's like, gives really positive unit economics for now, for us now, but then we want to, I mean, I think in short, if you were to show that, you know, yeah. given, of course, you need to have a margin on things. And of course, you need to, uh, to find like, you know, buy it as, as cheaply as you can. But still, if you were able to show that, you know, given our expertise in being able to fix yeah. and, and invest and, and, and then find the right buyer, then we can actually buy the highs at uh, buy your flat at a higher price than you would be able to sell otherwise. Absolutely. It would be so yeah. strong. Argument. Exactly. We're, so I mean, that we're really, our ethos is kind of really trying to optimize all the steps that we do so that we can give the highest possible offer to yeah. the, to the seller, to us. So exactly. that, so there should be a no brainer in the end. Yeah. And I think there's already cases where, because they just know they don't want to go through. I mean, let's say one simple case is like a Dutch spoo or something where you, mm. you really don't want to spend months of, right. of cleaning it up. And, and I mean, that's just what we have had a few of those. And then, so if you were to sell it in the current condition, we definitely, we have paid better. Mm. Like now we can say we I can pay so. you 50K more than you would maximum get on open mm. market because we will make the effort. Mm. I mean, otherwise someone else would buy it and maybe make an upside in a couple of years when they sell it because they did make go through all the effort of refurbishing it and cleaning it up. And mm. like, so, so definitely that's already the case in, in, in some yeah. cases, yeah. but then you also have the angle of, of, of buying from, I mean, kind of the branding aspect and that we can guarantee you certain quality yeah. of life from selling our home. And if you buy a home from us, mm. if something is broken, sure as hell, we will go out and fix it for you directly. So, so like we want to have really happy customers, both from the sellers and the, and the mm. buyers from us. So I think buying from us is, uh, should have value adds in terms that you can sort of have a company responsible for we, we someone you trust. trustworthy AI. Yeah, trustworthy. I mean, this yeah. is trustworthy yeah. or brokership or service. What we call like yeah, the, the brokership of, of buying and selling apartments and stuff. Real estate. Real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Trustworthy real estate, right? <laughs> That's, uh, it, is, it is funny because this morning I was uh, reading through an article of jobs that they will disappear in 10 years from mm. now. HR was one of them. <laughs> uh, Lawyers was one of them. And, and the third one was, was real estate. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think so. So um, this um. is funny, actually. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it could but be the reason it, sitting here. But yeah. in, in general, if you see it, I, I think uh, I think this is a genius uh, idea. I have myself went through uh, through several of this buying and selling, and I think it's a process that is stressing everybody. Yeah. Else. Um, and I had like a very big misfortune to, to bet on a wrong horse because when you are selling an apartment, you're also betting on a, on a horse, mm. which is yeah. basically the real estate guy. Yes. And uh, you know how good he is. Yeah. I will sell it. I have my contacts, uh, all of these other things. And then on the end, uh, it turns out that he's basically making, he might be making deal behind your back with somebody yeah. who is cousin actually to, to yeah. underpress it, right? And you don't know, I'm not saying that is the case which turned out to be the case for, for my last apartment. But it, uh, it, in general, it's a very stressful experience. Mm. Uh, and if we are looking at the whole digital economy is actually about selling convenience. This is starting with Steve Jobs, like one button solution, mm. everything mm. is one. And this is a, as well a beautiful example of it. 
It's a stressful situation of three, four months, six months. And really hope to also bring, I mean, increased sort of transparency and yeah. liquidity yeah, on the market exactly. that it's like less of a, less of a game. I mean, less, yeah. we even considered like actually selling with the kind of closed biddings that you have in other countries that mm-hmm. you, there's no, you can't get this uh, like hectic uh, bidding of like either you actually have, we have a minimum price that we need. We, we don't need to maximize necessarily price. We need to get back our margins and then we just want to find a new owner as soon as possible. So like having closed bidding is more kind of fair in that sense. That you know, there is a catch. Uh, yeah, there is a catch. So the current market is is defined by basically how many people are bidding on the market. Of course, yeah. Right. So uh, if more people are bidding on the market, the prices are actually going up. That is, and in Stockholm, they have been going up for thirty percent in the past, yeah. what ten years or something like that. So, so let's imagine the scenario there. You have one or two companies right now that are similar to Movesta, right? We, which are determining that the price point based on, because right now you're, uh, you're collecting data because it's a free market, people are bidding. And let's say in 10 years from now, there are two companies, nobody's bidding, everything is going through the process. Yeah. So then how is the value of the market being uh, defined? Yeah, so it's, I think it's unlikely, even though we think this kind of service is for really for everyone, I mean, for, not for just a niche, mm-hmm. then, you know, there will be, I think we believe for a long time, a, a large fraction of the will sell kind of the current, mm. but, but definitely that's also kind of the strategy, strategy as a company that with scale, I mean, of course we learn the most about the specific homes that we sell mm-hmm. and buy. Mm-hmm. So then we have even more details, even more features. We know exactly kind of how, what, what is sold for. And also we can, of course, decide if we're public with the prices. I think we will be for a long time because we want to, I mean, we want to make sure that if you sell to us, we, we, and then of course, three months later, we're going to sell it. Mm-hmm. So you complete, and that's open. We're open about, so we, we told you. I will be a bit nasty if you have like 20% exactly. plus. Exactly. Exactly. So if we tell you that your <laughs> home is worth only 2 million and yeah. then we sell it for 4 million, of course, mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to be noticed. So we want to really, yeah, yeah, very f- important that we give for kind of long-term customer satisfaction that we give a very mm-hmm. fair market price. Yeah. And then of course, deduce our, our costs from that for this kind, but, but like that it's, that it, it's open. It was not really the question, but, uh, oh, sorry. I, but I understand the, uh, uh, so yeah. the problem is that the market is right now defined by the free market and people bidding on it, right? Yeah. So when you have one company defining the, the price range, let's say, and there is nobody else, there is no, no, real no they always, you, you understand? So that is some the sort of bidding. At the, it's, a, it's a question of like supply and demand so that it has, has to be there. In sense. There has so to be some sort of my, my point was not to be negative to is it, it is, it is more that this is, you know, the way, and this is clearly the way how it's going to be in the future. So you're on the right path. But then when you're looking at the whole market, that means that there will need to be some kind of a changes of how yeah. this is regulated in order to grow. So maybe closer working with insurance companies, closer working with bank, yeah. benchmarking between countries, benchmarking between regions and et cetera. Because if you are a standalone definition of how the, the pricing is on the market, there is nobody else to bid, then you define the yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. And that is actually a little bit of a, problem uh, it's a bit of an extreme yeah. case as well but yeah, i see i see your point mm-hmm. but also if you look at our kind of really long-term vision i mean even reconsidering like how we own our homes in the first place mm-hmm. it's quite insane that it currently works like why private people making orders of magnitudes bigger investment in a yeah. single riskful uh, i mean why are we forced I mean, that's just broken it's so i think long term we really want to investigate that we want to kind of build this ecosystem and platform to to be able to 
facilitate people moving home so like uh, the mm-hmm. way that you live the way and i think long term definitely we're looking at aspects of how like uh, how do you structure the ownerships of ownership of homes like why do, why do it does it work this way why do you, it has happened for books yeah. it happens for music it happened for yeah. movies it happened for cabs taxi rides it will happen for yeah, real estate as well we're pretty convinced right? that it's, i mean it uh, must there's a better soon. there's yeah. a better <laughs> it's a better way but but speaking Good. of the bid is pro- bidding process as well i mean you of course are using more data driven and, and machine learning approaches to value the house mm-hmm. What about the, the bidding process or finding the buyer, et cetera? Are, are you planning to also use a more data-driven approach there? Um, so, so today we pretty much sell the homes with the help of a partner broker on the open market, very okay. standard way. So mm-hmm. so we kind of utilize, of course, your skills and like what's... Uh, Couldn't how, you make that also? But for sure. I mean, that's a, that's a, definitely that's in our, you know, vision is really about can we... Can we by data-driven methods or digitize, yeah. <laughs> by data-driven methods, optimize every step of the process yeah, so that exactly. it becomes scalable and that's so that you know it's we're close to true market value. You can pay the seller better, make everyone oh. the seller and the buyer more happy. I think everyone like can recognize yeah. you know when you're in bidding process and, and you don't know if you're going to stop or not. I mean that's a typical machine but, learning but, problem. But exactly, right? so that's another kind of side, not sidetrack, but given all the data that we collect, there's yeah, loads of exactly. exciting, like this is probably the hack problems, right? Yes. Just looking at, I mean, everything from like, which brokers are given the, mm. the what's it called, this scam, uh, the, the, the listing, yeah. the like the acceptance, really prices. acceptance prices or not. Mm. I mean, you can you can figure out a lot of funny and also looking at the bidding history, like yeah. how how to, can, you, can you predict the outcome of a bidding depending on the number it's of bidders? It's impossible to do for a human. I mean, you need yeah. AI. And so I really believe, I mean, Currently, brokers are very, brokers that are active in a specific area. They are very good at valuing homes because they know they have like a list of potential mm-hmm. buyers in their book, right? So they kind of know what the demand is, and they can they have all this knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I'm still absolutely convinced that you can go way beyond human performance yeah. in the valuation of homes no because question. you have you the human can never kind of grasp all these details. On, so so I'm. Yeah. Awesome. I think we could speak about this forever, but uh, yeah, time time is flying away. Um, Anders, what's next in your life? What's happening? Personally, professionally, yeah, you're going to continue in your cave and and, and hacking on the yeah now modeling part or yeah now we've now we've done spent so much time on modeling for a couple of weeks and now it's probably back to some more boring mundane tasks for a bit but but uh, yeah definitely we are so we're we're growing uh, a lot I mean we we really kind of think we've we have a playbook that works now in a kind of this current scale and we're so we're hiring people that's exciting. But also the time consuming process. So we have actually just two new members that have signed to join the team. It's not mm-hmm. official yet who they are, but that's an exciting kind of the Movesta side of things to to grow the company and now really start scaling uh, what we've the kind of playbook that we have. Personally, I mentioned the refurbishment this summer, kind of mix <laughs> mix right. of uh, mix of uh, I don't know <laughs> painful <laughs> pain and uh, pain and looking forward to have a yeah. very nice. Hasn't that been a side flat, bit, side, uh, side business for Movesta to help refurbish? homes since you have the expertise yeah but ultimately we would do it it's a good timing when people are not living there right so they you, that's that's a good timing to refurbish anyway in between owners yeah, but well, but yeah still, so we're sure you we would do. like to have that right otherwise looking forward to uh to to the summer and hanging out with my daughter yeah. Bega and, wife and, and any music endeavors oh yeah we'll see now i've there's been so many things yeah we talked about it earlier a bit before the start of the podcast i guess but <laughs> yeah i will have to stay low on that for a bit now during uh, a lot of work and a lot of 
taking care of my daughter and do you, uh, do, you, do, you, so. do you get the bass out at home or the guitar ho- at, out at home or is it just in, in the in the case for now uh for now it's in the case <laughs> for the nearest months but i hope maybe in after the summer to be able to spend some more cool. time after the refurbishment is done sounds good cool and hopefully we can uh, start meetups outdoors as well yeah some yeah soon I, look, as well. Look that, I look forward to that yeah. able we need to do a summer yeah. show from vermda i think like uh you know Rene's Brigga but AI Brigga you just uh, <laughs> you just say prepare the, the prepare the you know your place we are coming yeah, no problem. Yeah, we can do it no problem no problem at all Anders anyone that you would recommend to this show someone that you would like to listen to yourself um yeah I I sort of you, you did kind of warn me about that I should have prepared something but but I did um I think uh, one person that I haven't been in touch with in a while that would be fun to hear is Lars. Yeah, Lars Kjellsen. He hasn't been on the podcast, right? No. So he was. Is he, is he back in Sweden now? Or? No, I, no, he's on uh, Korea still. No, he's in in in, in London, I think. Uh, right, Facebook, Facebook, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so yeah. I think he has he has a fun journey of. I mean, I followed him a bit. He was at, he was he hired me for what, and mm. then he was at Paltarium where I yeah. came later. So we were kind of a little bit, but also very diverging past. I think it was exciting. I think uh, Patrick Tran for yep. Validio, uh, fun upcoming yeah. project around too. I mean, he's an interesting person. And I also thought thought of uh, Anna Backlund. Uh, she is uh, heading the AI efforts at Ika, yeah, and I have a kind of a mentorship collaboration with her. We can to try to exchange nice. learnings, and uh, she's an interesting, interesting, mm. interesting learnings from from uh, data and, yeah. and AI at oh, Ika. So maybe I think you should definitely check with, with those. Yeah, that's, that's some really good names. Yeah, and I oh, mean they—they they of course don't know that I, that I recommend them here, but I'm <laughs> sure. <you laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome, Andreas. Um, as usual, always a pleasure pleasure to to speak to you. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope you, uh, uh, yeah, can enjoy your coming weeks not only by refurbishing but. Yeah also doing some proper modeling and, and other fun stuff. Yeah, but, uh, adding people to the team, I look unreasonably a lot forward to. I mean, uh, that's cool. It's, that's it's fun. Good. It's always fun to get new, awesome. new energy, new stuff happening. That's good. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a pleasant evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.